Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? I always ask out of all my prayers. Podcast like it's 1989. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. Baby fish mouth. Baby fish mouth. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1989, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1989 from heaven here in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today is a longtime friend, first time guest, uh, writer, producer, all around great guy, Alex Berger. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Longtime listener, first time caller. Very excited. <laughs> all right. Uh, what's really what's really exciting about this is um, this is my favorite movie ever made. So no pressure. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, I well here's the thing. But did you say that about Major League too as well? No, <laughs> no. Major League. Well, okay. yeah. It's okay, all we can have favorite. the court reporter read back the record. <laughs> I well, maybe maybe it's my been recorded. Movie. You might not have you might not have said that, but you certainly said that Major League is like one of your favorite films ever. Like that that you said that movie is like in your DNA, <laughs> which it is. As is this, uh, these two movies. It, it, I, I am I am I, I am incapable of being rational and logical about them. Um, they also happen to be perfect, excellent movies that any schmo on the street <laughs> would recognize. But the thing is. They're also I, both uh, about baseball, obviously. They're both about baseball, and they're both movies I watched with my father from a very young age. Um, but the uh, he, the thing with this movie is I have resisted for my whole life calling it my favorite movie because I'm too cool <laughs> to say a sappy movie about 
fathers and sons and Americana and baseball in a cornfield and shoeless Joe Jackson and, you know, kind of the, the, the beauty of simplicity and all that stuff um, is my favorite movie. Mm-hmm. But if you really distill what you want out of a film, a movie that affects you every time you watch it, a movie that breaks you down and builds you up and you never take your eyes off it. Um, yes, it's my favorite. It is. So Alex, how do you feel? Yeah. How does, it's how does a, this movie, where does it, did you watch it in 89? Was this a movie you saw? Yes. Back then? I, I, I was trying to think about, cause I had a, a feeling you would ask me when the first time I saw it was. I'm sure I saw it in the theater. My memory at this age is I'm, you know, Guy Pierce from Memento. I have no recollection of the first time. So I definitely remember the second time I saw it because I had a very distinct memory from the second time I saw it. But I saw it in 89, I'm sure, in the theater. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I'm, I'm like Kenny. I grew up playing baseball with my dad and having catches and um, sort of in that sort of Americana space and played Little League. And I ended up playing baseball all the way through high school. So, you know, the movie hit a nerve with me because of a lot of personal investment in the topic. But I also think it's just, if you're into the sort of Capra-esque, you know, well-done schmaltz, which I am, like, there's almost nothing better than it. I mean, it really is a perfectly made movie for what it's supposed to be. So I, I, I just... For me, just it's worth it's worth noting how this film, <laughs> my history with this film, which really essentially goes back to about four or five months ago when I saw it for the first mm-hmm. time. Um, and uh, so, what was the impetus for you watching it the first time? Truly, you know, pandemic figured it was time to watch the movie. I, I had never seen it. People spoke incredibly highly of it. Um, you know, I I really like Kevin Costner, but he's not like he's not a movie star for me that I'm like I got to see all his movies. Um, and, and as you know, he's he's my favorite movie star. I know, I, I know. And yes. I, 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 <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's my my favorite my favorite man. My he's my a wonderful father man. Figures, my father wow. figures in my life are Kevin Costner, uh, Bill Parcells. <laughs> <laughs> Davey Johnson, who was the manager of the Mets when I was a kid, and then fourth on the list is my actual father. But yeah. no, I'm, wow, I'm no, 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 I'm kidding. My dad yeah. is my dad, but they're, they're all these all these men, you know, kind of remind me of my dad in in their own way. Yeah, and uh, and, and kind of held that place for me. But yes, it, Kevin Costner is like is like my second dad. It was an important thing for my family that we see all his movies. He he's great. I'm certainly not throwing any shade at him, but he's just he. Th- anyway, long story short, it's a movie that I feel like everyone refers to as like this is the movie it's okay for men to cry to, <laughs> right? Like it's one of those movies where it's like it's okay. Uh, and I would say it's expected. It's expected. Sure, sure. And yeah. and so it you know it was on whatever channel. I, I I don't know. I recorded it. I watched it. I remember talking to Kenny about it. Um, and. I watched essentially the entire film thinking, why do people cry at this? And then the last line, just waterworks. So you're just like, this movie works on a level that, and we're going to talk about this because I feel like there's a magic to this movie because, and I I don't want to get into the nitpickiness of like rules and logic and all that because like this movie is beyond all of that, which is part of the magic of it, right? Which is that it really kind of doesn't make a ton of sense when you really think about it. I never even considered right, that and, and that's, that's until you said it to me. I'm like, yeah. well, yeah, I guess it does. And I don't mean that in a sense, shitty way. I like, even, I know I'm not being that guy. I, I don't yeah, want to be that guy who like pokes holes in, in this movie because I don't think this movie deserves it. But 
watch the film, liked the film four months ago. We made plans to, to do this episode with Alex. And I was like, okay, I'll sit down and watch it again. And I'll be honest with you, wasn't really excited to watch it again. I was just like, I just mm-hmm. saw it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fielded for whatever. Immediately, this movie casts this spell on you in the first couple minutes, like that montage at the beginning where you're just like, this is the way I wish the world was. Why isn't the world a wonderful place like this movie? I mean, Coster talks about how he signed on because he saw it as his generation's It's a Wonderful Life, and it does have that kind of it vibe is, yeah. to it. It's, it's, it is undeniable. And, and, you, and you turn your brain off. You know, Kenny has talked to me about me having to turn my brain off for some movies. But this movie is all heart and emotion and fantasy in the best possible way. I, it's it's it is it is shocking to me that I sat down yesterday and I was like, all right, and I pressed play and immediately it cast its spell on me again, and I was just like, this movie is incredible. It's yeah, it gets me every time. It's you know that the last line, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, I can watch you know the 10 second clip on YouTube and cry like it's that <laughs> yes. powerful. Yes. Most of the time, yes. you need a little bit of context. Yeah, I, I rewatched. I hadn't seen the movie in a couple of years. I rewatched it twice. Mm-hmm. The first time I rewatched it was with my wife and father in law. Oh, so thanks. I really had to put on a strong face <laughs> and I, I made it all the way through, you know, like I got some emotion and some, some feels, but not yeah. a cry until yeah. the end. And it just came out, but thankfully yeah. it was late and it was dark. <laughs> and then the second time I rewatched it, you know, yesterday, or the day before it was just wall to wall. And I, I was telling you before we started recording, I made a list of all the places I cried just to document, <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure there's a website out there somewhere yes, where that goes. Yes. And uh, it's a long list. I mean, it, and I think some of it is the more you know the film, you start to anticipate those moments. You know, when when Costner says goodbye to James Earl Jones and starts to make a U-turn to drive away, I know it's coming that James Earl Jones is going to be in oh, those headlights so, saying, Moonlight yeah. Graham, Moonlight Graham. Uh, and so I go to start before, you know. Moonlight Graham. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. There's also... Yes, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please, please, please. I was just going to say that, you know... The th- one of the things that hit me this time around um, was how much I absolutely loved the relationship between Ray and it's Annie, right? Is that her yeah, name? It's unbelievable. It Annie is. Hagen. It might be one of the best marriages, like the the the, the perfect distillation of like of of what you hope domesticity is, right? Like there's just something so pure about uh, their love and friendship. Like it feels like to do both those things is really tricky. Um, she's tremendous. She's, um, she's amazing. The first scene they shot of the film was the scene in the, in the mm-hmm. um, gymnasium. And she was nervous about being so aggressive in that. She's, she's so fucking cool great. And she's so, so cool in it. Cool. The slide what's, into what's the hall. It's with the, the best. Yeah. I love it. What's yeah. so great. I, you know, as you guys have done this podcast, you, you talk a lot about like what, notes these people would have gotten if this were modern times. Right. And, and I think we can talk a lot about how this movie would have been noted to death if this oh, were ruined. 2021. But but one of the notes, I'm sure it would have been interesting to go through the process with her character because, mm-hmm. you know, that character can do two things very poorly and it, it did neither one. One, she can be the nag who says, you're crazy, you're throwing away our lives and his marriage falls apart. And all of a sudden the movie is about is it my baseball dream or my wife? And it doesn't do any of that, which I think is a really smart choice. I mean, she questions it for like three lines of dialogue yeah. and then questions it again when he wants to do a second time. Or the other possibility is that she could be fully supportive with absolutely no grounding in it. And a lot mm-hmm. of that comes in performance, but then 
if you think about it, you know, she's a child of the 60s. She did a lot of LSD and acid. There's something very trippy about this journey that her husband's going on who didn't do a lot of acid. I love the line. Maybe it's a flash forward. Um, (laughs) And so it does feel grounded that she she'd support him in this journey. And yet she doesn't feel like she's one dimensional. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I I, there's I don't know how long this podcast is going to (laughs) be. It could be very long. I have a four o'clock uh, meeting, so we have, we have I w- six hours. <laughs> I want to. Um, I, I do want to step back a little bit yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and go into my history with this movie. Sure. Uh, I cannot remember the first time I saw it. Obviously, it came out when I was seven, but from uh, from the moment that I, I remember having consciousness, this movie has been in my life. This movie is E.T. for you, uh, Phil. This movie is Raiders or Star Wars or. Or 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 some or one of those movies for other people, and I know there are a lot of people like me. I mean, I feel like Alex, you know, that's kind of why I wanted you to be on this. But I, I feel like there are a lot of people like me who, you know, were were more, you know, kind of like sports nerds sure. who found themselves in this movie, but found the emotion and the story and the, the connectivity with an older generation, the nostalgia for something you didn't even exi- you didn't even experience. Um, for whatever reason. Uh, I always, so I've been crying to this movie since I was a little boy before I even knew what was happening. And a lot of that was because my dad cried to this movie and you know, my dad, Phil, I don't know if you've happened to meet my dad, Alex. I don't know if it's happened, but, uh, my dad is, does not look like a guy who cries. My Doesn't dad is like a, a crier. <laughs> he's a, he's a, he's a, a six, four business animal, uh, who would far more make fun of someone for crying than cry. But he uh, he breaks down watching this movie. And I always have kind of wondered whether there was a Pavlovian thing within me having seen my dad watch this and crying and uh, and what, I, what, how that kind of got kind of ingrained in me in my DNA. So, again, I've watched this movie hundreds of times. I've shown it to my kids uh, twice. I saw it in the theaters with them a year and a half ago when it was playing. Um, it was, uh, it's an important movie for me to, to show them. Uh, I know every line and watching it two days ago before this movie, before this podcast, excuse me, it was almost an experiment and a challenge where I felt like, first of all, I felt like I had to watch it analytically for the first time because we're going to do this, you know, the way we do other movies. Sure. And secondly, I wasn't going to cry because I've always kind of felt like my crying to this and a lot of crying in general for me has been performative. Right. You know, it has been, there's been a certain, a certain part of my personality and, and, you know, for lack of a better word, brand that was sensitive guy. And maybe it was just performative. And I didn't cry until the end of the movie. And the, the, the way I cry with this film it's not like the way I cry. I, I I will well up at the end of a happy movie. Oh, like which is a lovely feeling. Sure. But it is guttural. It is like a full body from your stomach. I can't believe this is happening. It is the same feeling. It is the same like like lack of control you get when you cry cutting onions, and you're just like, I don't even know why this is happening to me. Right. You, you know what I mean? Like I, I do, don't I know do. how you are doing this to me. So I, uh, I this this movie, obviously, plainly, 
means so much more to me than almost any movie we've done or could possibly do. Uh, I can't think of anything that's on its level for me. It's, 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 it's my relationship with my dad distilled in an hour and 45 minutes. Um, you know, I, I posited well, this question on Twitter yesterday as to whether or not this is the best father-son movie of all time. And, and it's, it certainly feels like it. And people gave other, uh, other answers. Indiana Jones, Last Crusade, another 89 movie came up. I the think only other movie I could think of. The only other one that really even comes to mind. But I'll, I'll say that, you know, part of what I think makes this so powerful is that um, a lot of it is, is subtextual. Like a lot of this is the father is absent in the entire film. It is, it is the, the Paul over the movie and over the Ray character. Um, and it's not done in a heavy handed way. I mean, there's occasional moments where, you know, when he's talking with, uh, with Terrence about that's the only time, that's the only time really. And, and it's, but it's, it's unquestionably a film about fathers and sons. And obviously which is, I think, what makes it so powerful that it's not a movie about a father and son physically in scenes together, like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is, which is also a great father-son movie. But I just, I love, for a movie that is kind of batshit crazy, it is a very subtle movie about grappling with the loss of your father, you know? I, anyway, Can I ask a question? Because I, I figured it would come up, and... It, I want to talk more about the fathers and son things too, but yeah, yeah. why, what, what is it about the movie that seems so crazy in comparison to other magical realism movies? Cause there's, there's a, there's a single buy, which is that there's a voice speaking to him. Right. You know, right. but we live in a world of, you know, Marvel. So like, I, it doesn't <laughs> seem to me once well, you buy that logical right. gimmick, it doesn't yeah. seem that, I mean, obviously he's behaving in a very, uh, I think it's you know, outlandish I th- way, but it feels grounded to me. Oh, it's, it's absolutely grounded, which is I think part of, the answer to me in the sense that the film is, is so grounded in like emotion and realism that the flights of fancy that exist in it, like time travel essentially at one point and like, and, and some of the, you know, the, it gets a little bumpy with like the Burt Lancaster young old thing that happens when, when Karen falls, like there's a little bit of sort of like rules of like when he's on the baseball field, he can be like, there's just stuff that isn't, Fully explain, and again, I'm not. I'm sure. really not trying just, to poke holes in it. Sure, but I'm, I feel like I feel like you answered the question to some extent, Alex. Yeah. Like, uh, it's crazy compared to an average film about baseball. It is. Right, right. It is very much within the genre of magic realism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. um, and which is not to say the movie doesn't have also just story logic problems. That, as you're alluding to a little bit, Bill, there definitely are a few, including. I, 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 I yeah. guess, right? right? I guess, but like they're, I think, they're they're like real refrigerator logic, but they're meaningless. Like they could right. not be rendered more meaningless just based on on. And we've talked about this obviously many times, Kenny. But like tone and like you're once you're locked in and you know that you've got a tremendous director at the helm who completely understands the ride he's taking you on, and you know you're in good hands you're fine, right? It's only when you're in a film when the tone feels wobbly or you're unsure. Like, this movie is so sure of itself that you never question anything that's happening. So here's, I I sidetracked a bit, but this is my father-son question, because I I, we're um, we're totally on the same page in terms of our, you know, onion onion cutting crying with this movie. (laughs) Is, you know, and and unfortunately, you know, this is the the drawback of bringing another, you know, cis white dude on your podcast to talk about this. Like, is this a uniquely heteronormative sort of like male with 
guys with fathers movie like do 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 people enjoy this movie mm. who don't have who aren't sons with fathers at, at the same level and i don't know the answer to that question i mean mm-hmm. my wife loves this movie mm. um but i don't know that she has we haven't talked about it in enough depth to know if she has the same experience that that kenny and i do with it it's you know it's it's a question that i thought that i thought of while watching the movie essentially does a movie like this First of all, and this kind of goes to the whole, like, I'm a little, you know, sheepish about admitting this is my favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Does a movie like this uh, have the same relevance when it clearly is speaking to cis white men in America with daddy issues? Which basically most movies in the history of our country are speaking to those people or at least seen through the lens of those people. They're not, that's not the protagonist. That's, you know, that's your, your, your gates. Um, I say this with a little bit of hesitation, but I think it's worth saying this is best in breed. And if you were to chop, if you were to, you know, kind of take out all the films that, if you, were to, if you were to stack up all the films that fall into this category, you'd have hundreds of thousands. If you took out the bottom 900,000 mm-hmm. and you left, you know, the top 100,000 or whatever, this sticks. The top 10%, the top 5%, uh, this, is, this, is, this is worth keeping around to speak to what a privileged white male goes through because it is privileged to have daddy issues, right? It is, it is privileged to be in a position where you're, you know, the thing that's holding you back as a human being is never having a resolution with the father who actually was there until he died of natural causes in his eighties. All right. Right. So that being said, it doesn't make it not relevant or resonant. You know, these are still really important emotional issues for human beings. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I feel like that half answers the question. The other yes. half of the, the other part of the question is, does this have re- resonance for people who aren't us? Mm-hmm. And maybe less so, you know, like maybe less. So we've done obviously a plethora of films that are not about white men. And Phil and I really love a lot of them. Like we really love, you know, Heather's and we really love, but I'm a cheerleader and we really love Drop Dead Gorgeous and so on and so on. And we often have guests who these movies speak to more than us or pretty much always have guests who they speak to more than us who have a different relationship with them. And there is a a level of we love it and we appreciate that you love it for kind of deeper, more emotionally resonant reasons. And I think that's okay. Right, I think that's what I've what I'm accepting when I say this is my favorite movie, which is yeah. this is made for me, and that's okay, and it works on me like Gangbusters, just yeah. like a movie like ET, which also works on me like Gangbusters, is made for like lonely little white boys, you know, lonely little lonely little white boys, and like uh-huh. Phil. Or, or, or kids of divorce, but I'll just say that. Um, I, I, <laughs> well, you know, well, I, hey, 
<laughs> I do think that I, I, one after the other. I want to kind of uh, drill into what you were, your question a little bit too, Alex, in the sense that one of the things that I found interesting about uh, that I learned as I was doing research on the film was the J.D. Salinger connection, which is that in the book, uh, the Terrence Mann character is is literally J.D. Salinger, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and J.D. sued them and said, like, do not put yeah. me in this movie, essentially. So he changed the character. Thank um, God. Thank God. Uh, but it does speak to, I mean, James Earl Jones is so good in this movie, but it also thankfully creates some diversity in, in the role and in the, in the film as well. Um, and not in a token way, like it, it, it's, it's, it's done incredibly well, but it also speaks to the, there's, there is an undercurrent of politics in this film that I think is handled very adroitly, which is, we referred to the Annie scene earlier where she gets in the, the tussle uh, at the sort of town hall in regards to Terrence's books and his work. The fascist cow. Fascist. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and censorship. I think it's Nazi cow, isn't it? it is Sorry, Nazi, Nazi cow. cow, yes. <laughs> um, but I think that that's a really interesting thing too. Like I was watching this film a little bit thinking it's hard not to think about Iowa as you watch this film and sort of the, not just the beauty, but um, quite frankly, that, you know, the population of Iowa and what that means politically, especially in 2021 and how this is, this movie is the America that I think we all wish we live in, in some form or another. And it is not the one that we, we do. Um, You know, I wish I like to believe that if a town hall was, was brought together right now and they were asked about censorship, that Annie would win that by and large not convinced of it, but I hope that that's, you know, I, you would like to think that's the case. I bring this up because I think that it's just interesting that that's folded into an African-American character, that it's done in a way that I think is uh, is smart, but not heavy handed. It doesn't feel like a movie that's trying to hit you over the head with anything politically necessarily. Um, and these are all reasons why I think that the film is is wonderful um it's it's not it doesn't get on a soapbox i mean that annie scene could have in lesser hands in in a in a worse script and in with a worse performance and a worse director would have felt like a soapbox and yet that scene plays as funny that scene plays as hopeful um i don't know i mean how did you feel about that because yeah it's funny there's a certain there's a certain one of the things i love about this movie and there's a long list yeah. Is it's 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 timelessness. You know, it's right, a movie right. that's made obviously in '89, and it feels very relevant then in terms of sure. the baby boomer generations. You know, uh, starting to get to the age that their parents were, and their parents were different. You know, parents were colder than they were, and they were you know starting to sure. realize that they'd become their parents and, and all that stuff. It, it could have been made 15 years before this, and and I think would have been just as relevant. You know, a lot of the political issues that you talk about a lot, and it could have been made now. Interestingly, the only thing about this movie that I think feels out of time is uh, baseball as a marker for America. You know, baseball was a marker for America. And, you know, that baseball has marked the time speech, which gets me every time and is on my cry list. (laughs) It's truly fantastic. And if you really think about a lot of the cultural, sociopolitical shifts in America, baseball has mirrored them until the last 20 years when now baseball is our third most popular sport. And if you look at, you know, Colin Kaepernick, and Black Lives Matter and kneeling for the national anthem is all told in the in the in the realm of football and and basketball is is was the tip of the spear on COVID. You know, like there's I think baseball has become largely uh, an afterthought to the American youth Slightly in a way that like 
Yeah. yeah, but 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 so that's it's interesting to me that the movie, which is so tied up in mm-hmm. uh, in that piece of it, that's the only piece of it that doesn't feel as relevant to me as it used to. That's interesting. That's, that, that's certainly true, and I don't want to um, table that conversation for too long. But I think that there's something there's something that I kind of thought of or noticed in this movie this time that I had never really thought of or noticed before. John Kinsella. There's so much you guys just said, but John Kinsella, who is Ray's father. Was not a young father. No, it was 52 or 56 when Ray was born. He had him old, right? He had him in his, you know, in his 50s. And I think he died uh, when Ray was about 20, something along those lines. I think they say he died in 74 and Ray is 36 in this. So something along, something in there, right? Ray said he went to Berkeley without ever, um, without ever saying anything out, right? He, he he said something terrible to him and went to college and never spoke to him again. And then John died, never met Annie, never met uh, Karen. Okay. It's interesting to me, very interesting to me, that the, the version of America mm-hmm. that Ray pines for mm-hmm. is pre-World War II, yeah. And kind of 1919, we're talking, you know, World War One. we're talking before the Depression, we're talking before the Roaring Twenties, we're talking, you know, this is the, the era when John Kinsella was at his best when he was a minor leaguer was in the 1910s, the yeah. teens, whatever you would call it. And that is a, this isn't a culture clash movie is what I'm getting at. This isn't, you know, this isn't hippie, uh, hippies of the 60s and 70s revolting against their Eisenhower era parents. This is hippies of the 60s and 70s looking back and saying there was a time when we could have gone on the right path. And I think we went on the wrong path. And I think my dad, John Cancella, is a link to that. So I... That kind of struck me um, in a way I didn't realize up 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 until this moment that I think there's a version of this movie where the players on the field are your your DiMaggio's, who I guess wasn't dead at this point, but the people from the you know the the maze and those the people from the Aaron, the people from the the 30s and 40s, um, and excuse me, 50s, but that's not what they wanted. That's not that's not what they wanted, and there's something really wonderful and sweet and and innocent about Shula's Joe, about a time when you can play without your sh- fucking spikes. Well, like, I think that is backyard shit. So, I, what I, I I totally agree with you, and I think that what's interesting as well is how the players that play on his field are players that were pulled into a scandal. Um, you know what I mean? That that and some unjustly. Um, that there's this none unjustly. That's the one thing I have. That's the one issue I have. With I, don't, I don't know enough about it. The, the notion, the notion, the notion that like I that just Shoeless Joe was was not was not part of it. He took the money, but he didn't throw the game. I don't care. He took the money. It's over. But the mo- the movie's adamant that he didn't do anything. Yeah. But uh, that's. Fine, I don't care. I yeah, really don't care. Like, I don't think about it. But, yeah. but you know, even Terrence I just think it's interesting Ed, that those athletes yeah. are the ones that appear. I think it's interesting that that, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to what you're talking about a little bit, which is looking at the past with rose-colored glasses a little bit, um, and 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 the way that Ray sees his father that through was, that lens. That was a crisis moment for baseball. 
Yeah. Right. That was your that was your loss of innocence moment for baseball when people started to say, oh, my God, there's, you know, there there's uh, um, elements around mm-hmm. this game mm-hmm. that do not reflect what we want baseball to reflect. And there yeah. is a, I, I think there is a clear demarcation or at least was. Yeah. Um, and I think the demarcation now is, you know, steroid era. Yes. Um, sure. sure. Be, uh, before and after when the game was innocent, when the game is, you know, no longer innocent, um, sure. you know, and this obviously doesn't get into issues of race and, and, you know, no. just, just, just the whiteness of baseball and what that all means. And, you know, that's another thing that you do kind of just, it's hard. I, it's hard to just say you just ignore it. Well, that's the one regret that the director the director had, which is that if he could do it again, he wishes that he had players of color. That being said, he also was like, it doesn't match with history, so it would have felt a little bit disingenuous in its own way. But so I, I think he's perhaps being a little hard on himself in terms of trying to sort of find a way to to you know square that circle. Well, but you know, you know, I do think making Terrence Mann a black man and a black yes. radical and also yes. a black pacifist very and having- important. Yeah. Having the players react the way they mm-hmm. reacted because not every player was a racist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't as if Jackie Robinson was yeah. not welcomed by some players. He kind of famously sure. was welcomed by players like Pee Wee Reese. So um, that, so I, I don't think it was yeah. cr- you know completely ridiculous to have some players welcome Terrence Mann literally into heaven. But yes, yeah. I think that was really kind of an important part of it. And also uh, Terrence Mann's perspective on the Dodgers, um, yes, sure. the Ebbets Field Dodgers and Jackie Ray and, you know, Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb. Mm. Um, I'm going to give a quick synopsis for the people that might not have seen this film. Uh, when Iowa farmer Ray, played by Cameron Costner, hears a mysterious voice one night in the cornfield saying, if you build it, he will come. He feels the need to act. Despite taunts of lunacy, Ray builds a baseball diamond on his land, supported by his wife, Annie, played by Amy Madigan. Afterward, the ghosts of great players start emerging from the crops to play ball, led by shoeless Joe Jackson. But as Ray learns, this field of dreams is about much more than bringing former baseball greats out to play. It's based on the book Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella, written and directed by Phil Alden Robinson. Field of Dreams opened on April 21st, 1989, against Pet Cemetery, Major League, Say Anything, and the Dream Team. Uh, it would go on to make $84 million on a $15 million budget. Universal scheduled Field of Dreams to open in the U.S. on April. In April, the film debuted in just a few theaters and was gradually released on more screens. It would actually play until December of that year. Can you imagine a movie that actually was released in April and still in theaters in December? (laughs) Uh, Field of Dreams has 87% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 86% from audiences. And in 2017, it was uh, the U.S. Library of Congress selected it as one of the 25 annual additions to the National Film Registry. Uh, I'm going to read uh, a short bit of Ebert's four-star review where he said, the farmer is standing in the middle of a cornfield when he hears the voice for the first time. If you build it, he will come. He looks around and doesn't see anybody. The voice speaks again, soft and confidential. If you build it, he will come. Sometimes you can get too much sun out there in the hot Iowa cornfield in the middle of the season, but this isn't the case of sunstroke. Up until the farmer starts hearing voices, Field of Dreams is a completely sensible film about a young couple who want to run a family farm in Iowa. Ray and Annie Kinsella have tested the fast track. Literally First scene in the movie, but okay. Yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> I've tested the fast track and I've had enough of it, and they enjoy sitting on the porch and listening to the grass grow. When the, for- when the voice speaks for the first time, the farmer is baffled, and so was I. Could this be one of those religious pictures where a voice tells the humble farmer where to build the cathedral? 
It's a religious picture, all right, but the religion is baseball. And when he doesn't understand the spoken message, Ray is granted a vision of a baseball diamond right there in his cornfield. As Field of Dreams develops its fantasy, I found myself being willingly drawn into it. Movies are often so timid these days, so afraid to take flights of the imagination, that there is something grand and brave about a movie where a voice tells a farmer to build a baseball diamond so that Shoeless Joe can materialize out of the cornfield and hit a few fly balls. This is the kind of movie Frank Capra might have directed and James Stewart might have starred in. It's a movie about dreams. Um, you, you, know, like it, they, you like that they include Harvey in there too? Just, yeah, to, just, just a just little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because he did want James Stewart to actually be the Burt Lancaster role and James Stewart hadn't been in a movie in a really long time and and obviously chose not to be in it. Um, it's, I mean, it, it, it's... Ebert's review is fantastic. And this is, this is so like, this is right in Ebert's wheelhouse, right? Like this movie is, is it's, it's a movie movie. It's a film. It's everything we go to the movies for, um, you know, to, to feel good. It's a flight of fancy to turn off your brain and, and, and be able to. Um, and I think that's, that's part of its magic. You know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, Alex, in one of your questions, but like that balance of groundedness and fantasy that it finds really makes it universal, right? Like that's, that's the entry point. That's the, that's what allows, I would think most people to be able to watch this film and be taken away on its, on, it's sort of on its journey. Um, you know, I, I also, I want to talk for a second, Kenny, um, and we've talked about this on, on some other episodes, but about the Oscars of this year, because mm-hmm. this film, you know, I, I would argue this film is probably, I, would you say it's the one that sort of lived the best in terms of like its, its tale, its legacy of the five best picture nominees? You've got Driving Miss Daisy, Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams, My Left Foot. Um, it's the one that feels the most unimpeachable of the five. So the, it's interesting because, you know, I, again, you know, I became a Field of Dreams obsessive before yes. I became an Oscar, Oscar obsessive. Sure, sure, sure. And I had a certain sense, like yeah. in the 90s, I'd say around 94, I think was mm-hmm. the first year I really was started to get obsessed of what kind of movies yep. get nominated for Oscars and win Oscars. And Field yep. of Dreams is not the kind of movie that get, gets nominated for Oscars and wins Oscars. Maybe it did in the forties, but even like, you know, kind of famously, it's a wonderful life. Didn't win an Oscar. Um, So, you know, and in kind of that, I think there's this idea that Capra esque movies win Oscars, but they don't, it's just not, just not those kind of movies. Do you think if this movie came out, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh yeah. If it came out today, would it, would it win? Is that what you're, what you're, I definitely wouldn't win, but it would be nominated. It's just, I think it would get nominated. It doesn't feel prestige in the way that, Oscar yeah, movies tend to feel prestige yeah. these days. It's so hard to say because you, you, do, you do never know what's going to pop up. You do never know when like a green book is going to yeah. like yep. catch fire out of nowhere. Yeah. But, but so, so I, the, the, the point was when I found out this was nominated for best picture, I was shocked. Right. <laughs> I, I, I was shocked. I'm like, I thought this was my movie. I thought this was the kind of thing I watched. I think this is something that I enjoy. Yeah. And it's not, you know, shocked in like a similar to finding out Star Wars was nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. E.T. was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Raiders, like these movies that just don't feel like things the Academy would appreciate or want to uh, want to celebrate when, you know, they felt like their goal was yep. to celebrate movies like, you know, Schindler's List and Unforgiving and Dances with Wolves and sure. these movies that are for grown-ups. 
Um, even Silence of the Lambs felt like that. That's for, for other people. So of those five movies, there's no question it's lived on the best. Um, I would I would also say, you know, we, we talked talked about this little a, a little bit on our episode um, about uh, Sea of Love because we brought up Argo. Had Field of Dreams won, it would have been a disaster for this movie. Right, right. Um, it would have gotten right. picked apart in a way that right. it it can't withstand. Um, and it it would not it does not need to withstand the mere fact that it got nominated almost is too much for a movie like this. Um, sure, magical yeah. real, magical realism is not a yeah. a genre the Oscars are comfortable with, That's and it's true. not a outside of musicals. It's not a genre that that movie watchers yep. are generally comfortable with yep. loving because it's all hard. It's all. You know, it's it's all um, it's all emotion. It's, you're so vulnerable loving a movie like this. So I think it's I, I think it's interesting. I, I agree with everything you're saying, Kenny. I think it's interesting that so it gets a best picture nomination. It doesn't get a best director nomination, which I I mean, if I'm being completely honest, that's the thing that kind of blows my mind a little bit because oh. the high wire act of the direction of this movie is unreal. I mean. There are two director nominations for movies that did not get Best Picture. One is Woody Allen for, for Crimes and Misdemeanors. The other is Kenneth Branagh for Henry V. Um, Kenneth Branagh being kind of the weird one uh, a little bit, just in the sense of it being a little bit, you know. But, uh, but of course, and you know this, directors nominate directors. Yes. And directors are insecure. I mean, sure, it's just like sure. what it comes down to. People are just insecure about it, particularly at this moment in time, 89, when you have Sex, Lies, and Videotape coming out and you have Drugstore Cowboy and there is this element of like, let's yeah. get grittier. Yep, yep. I think there was a, I, it wasn't cool to like these kind right. of movies. That's totally you know? fair. I agree. And, and I, I, it's, Rain it's, Man it's, had just won. I do think that there was a bit of a like, let's, let's get into the 90s. And it's no right. coincidence that a movie like you know, Silence of the Lambs would win two years later. Unforgiven a year after that. Mm-hmm. Even Schindler's List is like obviously a you know Academy Award winner, but certainly certainly not a soft movie. Certainly not no. a, a, a. I, I we will we'll talk about this when we do our Driving Miss Daisy episode, which which we which we will do. Um, driving Miss Highly anticipated. Driving Miss Daisy episode. There's already there's already fans lining up outside the podcast theater. <laughs> For tickets, I oh, yeah. it's it's a weird movie to win for a bunch of reasons, but um, it does feel a little bit like you look at those five nominees, and and I'd be very curious to see what the numbers are, like how it splits among those five nominees, because I, Driving Miss Daisy feels a little bit like a film that that wins based on math as opposed to winning based on perhaps a desire to win. Um, it also wins best adapted screenplay, which. I also think it's just crazy. When I when you Driving think about Stacey. Yeah, Drive Miss Stacy Beats, Born on the Fourth of July, Enemies of Love Story, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. Um, you know yeah, Field, of, Field of Dreams didn't win a single Oscar, right? It's it one of the few best it, picture nominees. Exactly. It's the only best picture nominee that year that didn't win an Oscar. And did not Alex, get any uh, did not get any performance nominations. Yes, Alex, did you read Shula's show? Yes. In yeah, I did too. Uh, like what, when I was probably fifteen years yeah. old. And I, I just I re familiarized myself with the plot as we were preparing for this, just to remember what's different and what's the same and mm-hmm. the whole Salinger thing. And, and then there was the whole the, the title, dif- all the title differences, which was like, yeah. Yeah. You know, the whole thing about the title, right. That, uh, which is, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so, so, so he didn't, uh, Robinson wanted to call the movie Shula's show mm-hmm. studio said that sounds like a movie about a hobo. We want to call it <laughs> field of dreams, which he resisted. And he eventually yeah. was uh, steamrolled on. So he called WP Kinsella to tell him 
I'm so sorry, but we have to change the movie's title to Field of Dreams. I hate it, but we have to do it. And Kinsella said, I never wanted to call the book Shoeless Joe. I wanted to call it Dreamfield. So there's certain, there's oh a, a nice symmetry there's to something that. really lovely about that. Yeah. yeah. He said, I had that dream too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's one of my favorite moments in this movie as well. When it's Annie and Tom it's 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 a great moment. Um, and I just it's the button of him pointing up up to the bedroom they're, for her to like start packing. They're so it's married. They're like so they're like they're so, so married. It's like it's it's an amazing just connection they they have. You know, I I the no performance is getting nominated is uh, a real travesty. travesty. Amy Madigan, 100%. James Earl yes. Jones, 100%. Well, yeah, th- that's what I was going to say. If even, even if this movie were released now, and I think it would have been probably looked down a little bit of, by the sort of, you know, intelligentsia of the Academy, I do think a James Earl Jones performance like that is going to get nominated any year yeah. because it's iconic. It's a very, very uh, well-known actor mm-hmm. doing something, you know, very specific in a movie that really stands out. It's, it's a, you know, just it's, to me, that's textbook best supporting actor I totally you know, say I agree. I, I I do think that in you know Alex, you did ask the question, and I do feel yeah. like uh, you know after this conversation, I think that this movie could have some success today. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that our generation is more open to having our like you know heart opened up and our our you know our emotions kind of toyed with and trampled on and destroyed, and I think. Um, I think there's even some, you know, there's even some coolness to it. And and what I would bring up as, you know, exhibit A is the extensive love for the Paddington series um, among everybody who is cool, which is, I think that people, I, have I you not, not seen Paddington? I was not, read in, I was not read in on this part of being cool. Uh, I, somebody I left think, me out of that club. I think Paddington uh, somehow has become one of the coolest franchises and it's also the sweetest franchise with the lightest touch that is about connection and humanity or bare humanity um about doing your best about you know connections with your past um about the you know the essentially the power of positivity and it's it's beloved and i think that it ha- and i think we see it in tv too uh what mike shore does for instance you know i i think that there we are in a moment where niceness does get kind of rewarded and sweetness gets rewarded. Um, and Ted I, Ted Lasso I, is an exact example. Of Ted Lasso is perfect example. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think you see that in TV. I, I just can't think of an example of a, an Oscar, you know, critically acclaimed Oscar movie that does that. I, I understand yeah. the sort of populist appeal of, you know, uh, well done schmaltz, but like, I don't, and I, you definitely see that all over the Emmys, but I don't think you see that in, in the Oscars. I, I could be wrong. I mean, I'm not as much of a buff as... Yeah, I'm trying to think about Because once they expanded to 10, I do feel like we got a couple interlopers in there to some degree or another that are a little bit more um, studio-friendly, what have you. But, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to think. Nothing's coming off the top of my head. I, I well, don't think I mean, you're necessarily... Sorry, go okay. Green Book is the answer. Green Book... Right, right. Green right. Book is well done. Green Book is attempting to do... Attempting, and I, I think failing terribly, to do something political and to do something meaningful right. and to do something that's about some societal issue. And as Phil alludes to, like, there's some politics in the deep background of this movie, but this movie is very much about the human experience and it's timeless. And I think... Yeah. Um, I don't think it has that claim to prestige that Green Book was trying to do. I'm not, and I'm not. Re- I'm certainly not writing for Green Book, but yeah. But what? Total Green Book stand. 
But what I, uh, what I, you know, kept thinking throughout this movie is, you know, just how much I love, and you call it well done schmaltz, and I would, you know, call it Middlebrow, right? How much I love a uh, unabashed, unafraid, down the middle, Middlebrow movie pitched at all four quadrants uh, and kind of open with their desire to make you weep. And I do think that's what Green Book attempted to be, right? I think that, and, and, and I can tell you from having seen it with my whole family, that's what it was for audiences who aren't, aren't us, right? Mm-hmm. I, think, I, I think audiences who aren't quite attuned to the political conversations of the day and do want to look back to a time when uh, a black guy and a white guy being friends was kind of all you needed to, to mm-hmm. be progressive. Mm-hmm. It really worked for those people. Um, I think you know, that I guess I think, I just a pitch down the middle, middle brow fair made by a studio, made by a big studio director. I think that there's a place potentially for that. Um, I'm just looking at the, at the nominees um, that speak to this uh, over the past few years. I think that the blind side fits to that. I think that um, I think the help speaks to that. Now, unfortunately, there seems to be a direct correlation between all these movies. Um, that being, figures. Yeah. That being, you know, uh, racist, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, but I do think that um, to Kenny's point, it does feel like every now and then, I mean, I, La La Land is a musical, so that probably doesn't count. But but the point being that I think that every now and then they try to do this um, and it and and it does tend to fall into an unfortunate bucket. But I also, you know, it's funny, you brought up uh, James Earl Jones, who absolutely should have been nominated for this film. I think the person that probably took his nomination was Dan Aykroyd for Driving Miss Daisy, which is just like... Come on. Um, so it, it it was just sort of a year where I guess people were just like really into driving Miss Daisy in a weird way uh, that we will definitely get into. But well, isn't um, isn't driving Miss Daisy? You know, isn't there a direct the line of from the hidden, yeah, fi- yeah. hidden pictures, yeah, the yeah. help, hidden yeah, fi- yeah, yeah. the yeah. blind figures. side, yeah. hidden figures, yeah. the help, the blind side, driving Miss Daisy. 100%. I mean, Green Book, all are, of it. All Green of it. Book, exactly. Yeah. Those are all the same types of yeah. movies. Uh, friendly yeah. white saviors saving, yeah. you know essentially yep. black people who are willing to be saved by white people. Yep. Um, it's weird. totally unlike, yeah, well, it's, 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 it's comforting for a certain, for white people of a certain age. Sure. Right. And yeah. I think we get one of those coming up in 99. We haven't done it yet, but the hurricane is that movie. A hundred percent. Um, in a very weird way, like a very so weird is the green mile in a weird way. The Green Mile is weird too. In <laughs> Green Mile is a very much like kind of of this ilk, mm-hmm. uh, and magic realism, and magic realism. But at least the Green Mile is true to the you know the IP, whereas the Hurricane decides to tell the story of Reuben Carter through the lens of yeah. uh, a few Canadians who are saving his life. Allegedly, yeah. let's not be. Let's but not you know. They had no just need to throw shade in Canada. Um. So I did. There's a bunch of things also that that jumped out at me, and this this does speak to all of what we're talking about as well. Like this movie is impeccably well made, right? I mean, the photography is beautiful. Um, you know, this is another film where you know we talked about this a little bit on Sea of Love the other day, Kenny. But you know, um, I think about that last shot 
of Field of Dreams and what was required to get this last shot, which today would entirely be computer generated. But instead, mm-hmm. they basically, yeah, basically be, be, funneled be 3,000 cars. <laughs> they got yeah. 3,000 cars into a fucking bottleneck so that they could create this line of cars coming. It's just, I mean, it's a different time, but like, that's a wonderful thing that also on top of it, they, it was, of course, a lot of this movie takes place in the magic hour because it's beautiful and it's, it's, you know, magical. Um, So they really only had one shot to get that chopper shot of them playing catch and then to pull up to see all these cars. And Costner was sweating bullets that he was going to like drop the ball or he was going to fuck it up in some way because then, I mean, it's all, it's all for naught. But he's Kevin Costner. He's never fucked up anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's just his thing. That's, that's a yeah. different podcast, Kenny. I, yeah. want, I want to listen to I want to listen to Kenny's fanboying podcast. <laughs> it is true. I know. Oh, we got we got two Kevin Costner films in '99 yeah. to do. I was so. gonna say it's an amazing thing to say about the guy who you know started Waterworld and made the Postman, but yeah, uh, that's but my I, guy. But I, but I think it speaks to just in terms of the filmmaking, the difference in filmmaking, right? I mean, this is a nineteen million dollar movie in '89, which is probably a fifty million dollar budget today, which is not astronomical, but it's not nothing. Um, and it's just a movie that's made very tactically. It's made in a very sort of like grounded, believable way. Half this shit would be CG now. It's just, just Do you know the depressing. story about the the cornfields. No, please. Fantastic story. So uh, they shot the movie. To be Costner had a hard out to go shoot another movie in August. Revenge, they, yeah. they needed the corn to be a certain height to make all of those cornfield scenes work. So they backed the schedule into we'll shoot all the corn in July and we'll shoot the rest of the movie first. And they had and it's you know not to get too into the nitty gritty of making a movie, but you never want to leave your outside shots for last because it leaves you no rain cover. But they decided to do it anyway. So Phil Robinson said that in like. May, June, as they're getting ready to shoot the movie, his, like, corn guy comes to him and says, there's a drought in Iowa. And Robinson was just so busy that he was like, okay, great, good to know. And then, like, three weeks before they're supposed to start shooting the corn scenes, the corn was, like, this high. And he said, what's going on? And the guy said, I've been telling you there's a drought in Iowa. And he's like, I can't shoot a movie with one-foot-high corn. So they came up with two plans. They, um, They shipped in all of the world's fake corn, most of which was in Japan, Um, but literally like the entire world supply of fake corn because it's a lot of corn. So that was plan B and plan A was they were going to truck in water to try to like make the corn grow. And the corn grower guy, the corn consultant was like, no, 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 that's not going to work. And eventually they dug into why. And he said, because if you overwater corn, the stock will grow really high, but you won't have any corn. And Bill Alvin Robinson said, I don't give a shit about the actual corn. I just need the high stock. So anyway, long story long, they get there on the day and the corn is like, two feet above Costner's head and it's too high. <laughs> so they had to put in wooden planks. So all those scenes where he's oh in the cornfield, he's standing on a, on an apple box. Essentially. Oh, that's great. Oh, wow. That's great. And that's that's that ends my, movie uh, making. That's, that's what I'm corner. saying. That is movie making. I just yeah, love exactly. that shit. That's, that's what I'm saying. And what bums me out is that today it would just all be computer generated. They just say like, whatever, we'll, we'll do it in post. Sad. It is very sad yeah. that, that the, the fun of producing, Right, because that's what that is, right? That the fun yeah. of figuring it all out. How are we going to do this? Is basically it's a lost art at this point. I mean, uh, not totally. for an, not for a low budget film, not for an independent film. There's still yep. there's a st- still a lot of ingenuity there, but for big budget films, yeah, it's you know do it in post. We'll, you know, we'll CG it's, it in. It's, yeah, 
Um, I want to talk quickly about the casting of this movie because Costner, apparently Robinson didn't think Costner would want to do it because he had just done Bull Durham. And he was like, he's not going to want to do back-to-back baseball movies. Ultimately, obviously, Costner did do it. Other people were approached. Apparently, Tom Hanks was offered the role and he turned it down. I can see a world where it's Tom Hanks. I mean, it's that 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 doesn't seem like a stretch to me. The other people: Alec Baldwin, Jeff Bridges, Michael Douglas, Richard Dreyfus. Um, oh, Mel, kill me! Uh, right, Mel, give me the Mel Gibson. Give me the okay, Alec Baldwin, Jeff Bridges. Oh, uh, we don't know. All right, so I'll start from uh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks can throw a baseball. We've seen him throw baseballs would, in yeah, movies. He'd be great. Tom Tom Hanks would have been good. Yes. Uh, who's next? Alec Baldwin. He's way more of a shoeless Joe. Uh, who's who's next? Uh, Jeff Bridges. I could have seen Bridges. Maybe Bridges would have been great. <laughs> Bridges would have done it. Douglas wrong. Michael Douglas is all wrong. No, uh, not right. Richard Awful. Dreyfus is not Kill the right. Movie. You don't like uh, me if you do Richard Dreyfus. Uh, Harrison Ford. I mean, sure. I'm sure he was in the running. For Harrison everything. Ford would have killed it too. Uh, Mel Gibson would have been. I don't Bad. know. It's hard hard to judge in this in this hard to divorce him from hard uh, to divorce. Yeah. Uh Michael Keaton's interesting. That might have been interesting. Um I'm not sure it's totally right, but it would have been interesting. Bruce Willis okay. is all wrong. Uh Patrick Swayze's all wrong. Kurt Russell, maybe. Those are the people. Really, I do think that the Jeff Bridges version loses yeah. nothing. I uh outside of that, you know. And Jeff Bridges in 89, where like, I mean, we did Fabulous Baker Boys, obviously, in a previous episode, but um, Bridges is at a really interesting, like, the hottest he's, you know what I mean? Like, he's at peak Jeff Bridges hotness in 89. I could see him absolutely nailing this. Um, And he's got that, this is the thing about Costner in this film that I think, and I think it's Kevin Costner's best performance, because it's got this, like, What's the best way? It's like there's a slyness and a heartfeltness and an intelligence and an everymanness that Costner is able to bring in this that I think it's just all of his strengths. Like it just really feels like it's him working to all of his strengths. There are lots of great Costner performances and we'll, I mean, I'm sure we can talk about those as well, but um, I just don't know that the full package is presented to Costner in this way in anything else that he's done. But Kenny, you're the Costner guy. He's your guy. Um, this Do you is feel the best, as though there's another? Of course, I think this is the best Costner performance. But I also think Costner has like five or six kind of tower performances. Wow. Um, five or Jeff, six. JFK being chief among JFK, them. Yes, sure. Right? Yes, like yes. JFK, he's holding together a really hard movie to hold oh, yeah. together. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and finding and that's his an star wattage, too. Like, that's yeah. him at the peak of his powers when it comes to his star abilities. But and yes. it's his, it's his, he very much was the voice of liberal America at that point. Sure. And he was a voice that liberal America wanted, right? Progressive still- America. Yeah, I mean, you look, he, you know, he, he was the only major celebrity that supported Buttigieg. So this is true. This is true. <laughs> so again, not like Buttigieg is, you know, Mr. Progressive, but right. putting your celebrity out there for Buttigieg early and that was yeah. a thing. It's and true. certainly it's planting true. your flag somewhere. So yeah. he he had this like he had this hippie done good thing about yeah, yeah, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. That I think, you know, boomers found very um very comforting. And then I think the JFK thing speaks to that. I have I also been kind of like fascinated and 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 a bit taken 
by how closely intertwined his career has been with Vietnam and Watergate and kind of the reappraisal of those two things and how much, how omnipresent that is on the minds of boomers in this country. We don't have that. It's weird that it's very weird to me that there aren't dozens Mm -hmm. of 9-11 movies, which I guess there are, but they're not movies that like, speak to us they're not like our our foundational movies that there are dozens of movies about the bush administration which at the time like took up all of our mental energy and was really important i don't think there are going to be dozens of movies about the trump administration because i mean i don't think people want to relive it but i also it's it's that's just not how we deal with things whereas boomers made one of these every fucking week mm-hmm. and you know they really needed to like relitigate this and kind of like write these ships through movies that's what jfk did yeah jfk was oliver stone being like this is how it should go this is how we should like this is how we should like fix this fucking thing that happened mm-hmm. that is like so fucked up right I, I totally totally agree um alex what are what are your feelings about kevin costner pro um <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the love for him that Kenny does. I'm enjoying this this planted spinoff episode of podcast like it's Kevin Costner. Um, it, feels like, it feels like a backdoor backdoor pilot that like we're gonna yeah. be considering uh, as you guys are doing podcast pickups. Um, I, I think he does every man really well. I don't think his range is like as big as you know the other sort of like all American. Like the, Hanks has a Hanks has a much broader range sure. of no what question. he can do from sure. like broad comedy to Philadelphia. Sure. And um, I think Costner does this. This is like, as you say, like the bullseye of Costner. And then I think his aperture is just not as wide. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll watch a movie with Kevin Costner and say, you know, he, he sort of falls into that category of like, if he's in it, I'm interested, but I'm not running to the theater because he's in it. And these days I don't run to the theater. Yeah. It, it anyway, also... But- it also speaks to, and this is something we've talked about a little bit doing this, um, doing this Patreon on 89, you know, this was a time of movie stars, yeah. right? Like this was a time when people went to see movies because so-and-so was in it. Um, and, and I think that that's, I mean, we don't live in that world anymore. We live in an IP generated world for the most part now, but, but I do think it's interesting, you know, Kevin Costner was at the top of of lists back then, right? Like it's, it was, it was Costner. It was Harrison Ford. It was probably Mel Gibson to some degree. Um, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, like those guys were unimpeachable. Like anything they were in, people were going to see. And I think it's interesting that he's in that pool. Um, because I think that to your point, Alex, he doesn't necessarily have the broadest range, but he understands himself very well, right? Like he reads this script and he's like, I can fucking kill this. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Costner's very savvy, and his decisions in the yeah. late 80s and early 90s up until Waterworld were impeccable. Yeah. The the yeah. the thing about Kevin Costner is that's, that's so weird and kind of like makes you short-circuit a little bit mm. is his thing was relatability, right? Yeah. His yeah. thing was he, was, he, was, he wasn't the best pitcher and he wasn't the best player at uh, Bull Durham. He was the Crash Davis. He could never make the majors. Right. Yep. He was the guy who couldn't quite get it done. Field of Dreams, he's the guy who couldn't, you know, quite get it done. Um, even JFK couldn't quite get it done. <laughs> he has this thing where he's like, yes, he's very handsome and he's very likable and he's very steady and solid, not particularly charming. That was never his thing. He uh he actually is more persuasive than charming. Yeah. But um the the weird thing about Costner was then he went and made dances with wolves. 
Yep. Right. Which, by the way, is like a lot better than I think people realize or remember and appreciate yeah. um, and a lot more sensitive than I think people appreciate. Um, and he he had an ambition that I think way outstripped what anybody thought he might have. You know, Mel Gibson from day one was a lunatic psycho who bought his own shit. And you knew he was probably going to go into something like Braveheart that made perfect sense for that crazy fuck. But. <laughs> But Kevin Costner just seemed like a guy who was content, much like Harrison Ford, to star in movies, pitch directly at him, make his 20 mil every year, put butts in seats and continue to just play the play the Kevin Costner role. So I do think that he it it, it was a weird thing, you know, kind of watching him flame out in the 90s Um, and then, you know. Having one, you know, winning for Dance with the Wolves and Bodyguards was a huge hit. And uh, then doing Waterworld and have that be, you know, almost a career killer. And the postman almost being like you're fucking buried six feet under and yep. not really pulling out of it until like a few years ago. Yeah, Yellowstone, is, man. People like Yellowstone. Like Molly's Game. I yeah, mean, Molly's like, Game, yeah. Like he didn't really pull out of it until a few years ago. But um, but Yeah. It, it was, you know, and then he had some movies like The Upside of Anger, like things that people were were down for. And everyone was kind of always down to have Kevin Costner come back. But um, it was kind of was it he Was he the Mrs. Robinson character in that remake with Jennifer Aniston? Yeah. Yes, he was. Okay. Uh, yeah, he, was he's, he was playing kind of hot old guy for a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, You know, it's funny. You talk about Dances with Wolves. That's another Oscar winner that, like, all anyone thinks of is it's the movie that beat Goodfellas, right? Like all anyone ever thinks about is, you know, uh, and it's the same thing. I, I was thinking about this the other day a little bit. I really like The English Patient, but a lot of people just think of it as a film that beat Fargo. Like it's just, it's, it's sometimes the winner is just, that's, it's almost a, it's almost a shame sometimes, but. Um, it's a burden. It's a burden yeah. that, that, that very few films can carry. It just um, is. So I want to talk just a little bit more about casting. Ray Liotta apparently was not the first choice. Uh, Phil Robinson wanted someone in his 40s. But then Ray Liotta came in and had a sense of danger that he liked in the character. That's accurate. I think Ray Liotta always brings a sense of danger to whatever roles he's in. Um, They built, obviously, they built this actual baseball diamond in Dryersville, Iowa. You can see it as of 2018. You can go to this baseball diamond. It still exists. Um, and then in 2020, the White Sox and the Yankees were scheduled to play an actual game, but it was obviously uh, canceled due to the pandemic, um, which I think is interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, did, did you have a piece of trivia, Alex, that you wanted to drop? Or I, I, I was going to wait till we got there. Uh, okay. Well, it, it, I, it, there, it organically comes up as we talk about the movie. Oh, it does. So okay. Then I, I, I do. But, yeah, like, but while we before we skip over Ray Liotta, I want to uh, I, I want to talk about him a little bit. Okay. Um, you would never nominate a guy for that role, pretty one dimensional. Um, but he's great. Has has anybody ever been more perfectly cast? He's so good. Um, like he's so good. What are you grinning at, you ghost? Is like one of my favorite fucking lines. His his the way he talks to Karen when she asks if he's a ghost, like how how cool he is throughout, but he has his air of authenticity and air of uh, authority to him. He's a little wounded, but mo- it's, he's he, the way he talks to Archie Graham. Um, it's just, he's so fucking cool in this movie. He only gives one Leota laugh. 
he actually gets it in there. The crazy yeah, the Ty Cobb laugh about Ty Cobb. Yeah. yeah, we never stand the, the guy when he was too. alive. What's but, also great, like there's, a, you know, what I love about him in this movie is a lot of the things you talk about, but he does, he does uh, sort of wordless acting extremely well. And what, one of the things I'd forgotten until I saw the movie again was when he shows up, there's like a full two minutes of complete silence, uh, a sort of silent oh, film so between good. him and Costner. And like, there's one line where Costner flubs a fly ball and says, sorry. But like, for the most part, he's just hitting him fly balls and pitching in batting practice with almost no dialogue. And it's- See if you can hit the curve. Riveting. You know the story about that one, by the way, which is that uh, he says, see if you can hit my curve. Uh, Leota smacks it back and hits the ball of, uh, the bag of balls. That, that really happens. Uh, Leota just actually hit a, a line drive back to the pitcher, knocking Costner over. And then Costner says, uh, you, can hit, you can hit the curveball, which was an improvised line, which is fantastic. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, That's he great. does. He, he embodies the character. I mean, obviously, none of us really know what Shoeless Joe looked and, and sounded like, but he embodied the mythos that that he, you know we were talking about for the first twenty minutes of the film so well. I think it's a good thing we don't know because uh, I think this version of Shoeless Joe is a good thing uh, for this movie and for us. I know a little bit about the real Shoeless Joe, which is that he was essentially a scumbum who uh, was illiterate and couldn't sign his own name. And uh, I'm 100% sure he took the money, and I'm 100% sure that he probably could have hit 600 in the series if he wanted to. So 375 was was a step back. I I think he um, almost – it's almost like, like he reminds me in essence of a guy like Ricky Henderson who was just remarkable to watch play baseball, just such a joy to play baseball and such a disaster off the field. Right. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, I'm a Mets fan, Jose Reyes, who is my favorite fucking player of all time to watch play baseball. And, you know, also a wife beater. So like, these are like these, I, I think that, I, I think that um, not knowing about Shula's show, and just kind of having the myth and not knowing anything about the man helped the movie a lot. And I'd also say this isn't Shoeless Joe. This is Shoeless Joe's ghost. So he can embody just the best qualities of this guy without having to kind of, you know, bur- you know bear the burden of not being a particularly great human being while he was alive. I agree with that. Uh, so let's we'll walk, let's walk through the plot a little bit. I, I want to say too, one of the things that kind of hit me as I pressed play yesterday was um, the guts it takes to open your film with a montage, like to and 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 to nail it as hard as this does. Like we've all seen a million montages before, but that you actually feel the emotion of this, and you don't know any of these people. Like it's just it's part of it is. Uh, part of it is the Costner effect, which is that like people immediately like Kevin Costner and, and that's part of it. But also just, it feels very real and genuine. It feels like someone telling you a story in the way that they would um, right out of the gate. Um, it's obviously very effective on a narrative level, which is it catches you up. It tells you all the things that you need to know coming into this. And it allows the film to be a pretty like sprite hour 45. Like this movie does not overstay its welcome. It understates. There's a bunch of deleted stuff that, that I read about, but none of it feels important. None of it feels like you really needed it. Um, it's it's a breezy movie. And again, Kenny and I have talked about this a lot on this 89 podcast, but movies that understood themselves that were 90 minutes, 100 minutes, got out when the movie was over. Uh, we don't do that anymore for whatever reason. 
there's I'm sure numerous reasons for it. But don't make good movies anymore. It's just that simple. It's just, it's just well, the other simple. the other thing you guys talk about in this podcast a lot, which I alluded to, mm. uh, you know, six or seven hours ago when we started, <laughs> is uh, you know, the movie doesn't fall into the trap of overlogicking what is essentially an illogical premise. So Correct. a different director, writer, a different studio would have, first of all, done 15 minutes of setup before the voice comes. So we understand everything yep. about who Costner is yep. before that happens. Mm-hmm. And then it certainly would have made us have a lot more investigation into where the voice was coming from. I know there was one deleted scene about that, but for the most yep. part, it doesn't really concern itself with that. And then the other huge leap that we just accept because we're along for the ride is that he knows that the voice is telling him to build a baseball field for Shoeless Joe Jackson. I mean, that's just like, right. that's a pretty giant logical inference that he's making that I've gotten the note myself a million times. Well, how does he know that? And can we step that out a little bit? And I just, it doesn't, no one cares. No one cares. So I thought about that. I mean, everything you said, Alex, I thought about during this, I mean, and you feel too, the, the getting all the backstory out in that montage, uh, you wouldn't do it today. You'd be too insecure. It's just, no. it, 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 it does feel wrong to write something like that. Um, but it works so well. Yep. And I wish people would just appreciate how well th- something like that works. Um, the yep. investigation of the voice would be a big thing. But I, uh, I, I do feel like this is the kind of thing where if I were in charge of this film, I'd say, just watch. Right? Because you do kind of get the answer you need, yep. which is not so much it doesn't matter but it, it's more that like there is a purpose, right? It's not like it's it, you get what I'm saying there. Um, and then I did kind of think about the baseball field, right? If you build it, he will come. And there was a subtle difference, and I do wonder how much this matters. But the baseball field, he saw a vision. Yeah. He saw the baseball field superimposed onto his corn, mm-hmm. uh, which. He didn't see Joe Jackson on that baseball field. He had a he he had a almost memory, almost forward flash of Joe Jackson on the field uh, at night. So that happened during the day, and then the vision he gets is a cutaway, not a superimposition, a cutaway to Joe in left field at night under the lights, and. That does feel like one came from the voice, which was build the baseball field, and the other one came from himself, mm-hmm. right? And I do think that there, we bought, we, we it was set up enough mm-hmm. that baseball and Joe Jackson are interconnected in Kevin Costner's head. Well, I, I think it also, you know, Ray Cassell's head. It, it comes back to something we've discussed a little bit um, before of faith in your audience, right? You know, mm-hmm. we've, we've lost faith in our audience or we think our audience is too smart and jaded, one or the other. But like, it really comes down to, um, and you would, <laughs> less is more. You know what I mean? Like this movie just understands that it has faith in its audience to put two and two together. But it also understands that if it does explain this stuff, it's death. Like if you try to unpack this shit, it would ruin this movie. It's like, midichlorians, it's, you know? It's, it, midichl- it's, it's midichlorians, exactly. So yeah. I that that to me is like, this movie gives the perfect amount of explanation, but it also rides on on its chemistry, its cast, its tone. I mean, that line when uh, Ray wakes up in the middle of the night and Annie says, what's going on? He says, don't worry, honey, I'm just talking to the cornfield. Like, that's, that's the... 
like that's the joke of this movie in the sense that it understands what it's doing. Like it's just, it doesn't, yes, it's kind of taking the piss out of itself, which is important. Part of that wonderful chemistry between Ray and Annie is in that, right? It's in kind of like keeping it playful, keeping it light, not making it feel like the weight of the world is on this movie because that would also kill it too. Like that, that levity is what makes this movie so special too. But, you know, it's, uh, so I'm just trying to think, oh, one of the other things that I loved, one of the scenes that I loved, and it ties into what we're talking about here, is uh, Ray explains what he's hearing, the voices that he needs to make the baseball diamond. And there's a beautiful scene of him carrying Karen into bed while she's sleeping, and they're talking as he sort of, as they tuck her in, um, which is beautiful just because you know it's beautiful to see parents putting their kid to bed whatever but that domesticity is really beautiful but also that it's baked into a very sort of off the cuff thrown away scene and all of this stuff is thrown away in the best is in the best way is what i'm getting at like it doesn't shine bright lights on itself well the delivery of exposition and the way they do it with Yes. With Ray explaining who Joe is and basically explaining baseball to her. Yes. Uh, to Karen as he's plow- plowing his corn and putting up this mm-hmm. field. Uh, and it's just a great exposition delivery device. And that's another thing that I feel like we've lost. It's, 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 it's getting it done in a way we believe while other things are happening in a way that it seeps into your brain, but you are also taken by these images of something you've never seen before. You've ne- it, it, it is, it is a, a crazy character thing mm-hmm. to plow over your major crop to put a baseball field up for no reason. And that's pretty exciting to see happen in, in real life. Um, you know, the, one of my favorite moments of this movie that I, I don't think people ever remember is uh, that, the, that Joe Jackson and the guys didn't come immediately. They're standing Here. out on the fields. Yeah. And, and she goes, it's a pretty nice field or it's a pretty great field or something like that. And then you see the snow cover field as Kevin Custer looks out the window and you just, you do, even though you know where this movie's going, you know what it fe- what's going to happen. You do feel this, this sense of, um, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently. I asked Mint Mobile's legal team. If big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation, they said, yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Depression uh, from him and, 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 and resignation. And I would say another thing about this, because they don't waste time before the voice. But your 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 lead in is up until Joe comes. I get very upset when people say, "Well, people are going to know all this stuff from the ads." 
Like people are going to know what the movie's about from the ads. People are going to know that they, you know, that, that they that they go on a mission from the ads. So, I mean, like, <laughs> I don't even get that. Like, I don't yeah. like 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 write the movie. It's a movie beginning to end. The ad is not part of the movie. The ad is called from the movie. So I do. You have to know what these characters are going through when the you know when the thing happens. So there is that that hopelessness when he shows up particularly when he shows up yeah. that really uh, that, that really matters, I think as well. So, yeah, and it does, there's such a, it does such a good job of, and this is, you know, basic movie making one oh one, but like every time he feels like it's, he's figured it out. He, he just, it, the rug is pulled out from under him. He figures out that it's supposed to be a baseball field. And then Joe Jackson doesn't show up. Joe Jackson, you know, he, he gets another, he, Joe Jackson shows up and then he gets another voice. He figures out that it's Terrence Mann, And then, Terrence yeah. Mann doesn't want to see him, you know, and he brings Terrence Mann to the baseball game and then Terrence Mann doesn't hear the voice. I mean, it's just one after the other of, and, and one of the things I really related to about this movie is, you know, it's about belief and it's about belief in the face of no one else believing in you. And as we sit here, three writers, you know, there is something very true to our profession where, you know, our profession requires us to believe in something, even when everybody else is telling us it won't work. And there's something really inspiring, not just for writers, for everybody, about a guy who says, I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And he does it. And everybody thinks he's crazy. And it works. And there's just, uh, that's, I think, what feels so satisfying about the end of the movie is that he never quite figured out what it was for, but he's doing it anyway. Even he doesn't know why. And then it's answered for him with his dad, which I think is such a beautiful ending. I, I, yeah. Sorry. No, no. I, could, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that this movie is a beautiful metaphor for making a movie, right? Like it's, it's just, you know, believe in it and they'll show up in the seats, right? Like that, that is a a really lovely notion. Um, You know, I, I read a couple articles about how uh, Phil Robinson was not confident in this film and that the producer on, on numerous occasions had to be like, dude, you're getting it. It's, it's there. And he's just like, I don't know. I don't know. How can you be? Like, I know, I know. Movies like this so rarely work. And so often, like, we did always, Phil. Like, always is the, is the opposite, right? Always is, is very yeah. similar yes. in premise. And, totally. and if you miss, it's a disaster. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I do think that, that I, I do understand that. And you know what I, I really love? For, what, for some reason, there's another movie that's in my head that uh that has a similar premise and that's a movie gimme shelter you remember with michael shannon oh yeah yeah yeah. Uh, Isn't it just called is it called gimme shelter i think it's just called shelter gimme shelter. shelter is the i think that's the rolling stones documentary <laughs> well it is the rolling stones some maybe it it's both? just called shelter yeah, uh, i don't know called, it doesn't matter anyway i know the, i know the movie you're talking about yeah it's um it take, shelter. It's take, shelter. take shelter take shelter take shelter okay so that movie is entirely the 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 character dilemma of i have this vision i need to build a shelter the apocalypse is coming and everybody's saying you're crazy you're crazy you're crazy you're destroying your family you're destroying this town you're embarrassing yourself this is going to go terribly for you mm-hmm. and at the end you know he builds a shelter and the apocalypse comes um and that's it you that's the end of the movie how bad would this movie be yeah. if it ended with joe showing up at the end and that was it and it's like, oh, you're not crazy. There you go. You get to watch your 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 baseball player friend play baseball. Um, I think that the metaphor to me is you'll you never know what it is. 
you're striving for or you're building or you're aiming for until the end, um, until it's done. And I, I, I love that about it too. And if you, you know, if you, you hold on to this belief, you follow your gut, you follow the signs, uh, it may be even greater than you could ever, ever imagine, which is what I think this movie does so well. I think the, the, the payoff at the end while seated throughout the movie is not one you're expecting. You know? Yeah, it's... What did you expect, Phil, having seen this? I recently? didn't know the end when I watched it a few months ago. I, I, I mean, I don't know if I, I... I certainly didn't know that he plays catch with his dad. Um, I, I, I just... It, I, didn't, I didn't know that part of it. I knew he built the field. I, I mean, it, I, I didn't know a ton about it. Um, but it's, it's a surprising movie... Because, I mean, if I'm being honest, the first time I watched it, I found myself sort of like, I don't know where this is going because, like, I think, like, it kind of makes up the rules as it goes along. I don't say that in a negative way, but it's just like, it's just, well, it's just I, going I where it's going. There is, there's an element of where can it go? Yeah, right, yes, right, right. Like, there, when he sees Burt Lancaster, you're like, well, I guess this movie can basically do anything now. <laughs> like, it's, it's well, I mean, there's this element. I mean, I think if you look at it, you, you the, the movie doesn't come clear to you until the end which is a very kind of extremely bold movie making technique yeah to have the stated goal accomplished within the first half hour Mm -hmm. and then a series of mini goals explicated by this voice eases pain go the distance but you don't know what they mean and you don't even like there is an element of somehow I'm going to save the farm and save this field, but there's there's never any any work done in terms of monetizing this field, which is what he needs to do. Yeah, I I, I did find myself at the beginning being like, <laughs> "You're burying your family, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, here's a, here's a small uh, here's a small logic problem with the movie that it, it doesn't want to talk about." It's about $5,000 worth of land that he plows over <laughs> because a baseball field is two acres and he says it's $2,200 an acre. It's really not that much corn that he's plowing over. The movie doesn't <laughs> want to say that because it ruins the entire film. That's funny. Not, a, yeah. not that big of a deal to put a baseball field on a giant, presumably 100-acre corn field. Yeah, that's, that's fair. It's actually, that's fair. It's, it's actually a pretty great idea. <laughs> yeah, it's actually yeah, it's not the worst idea. You're probably uh, the only baseball field in town. You can probably rent it out to Little League. You, you might make yeah. your money back. I think yeah. it's funny that one of the few um, issues that the writer um, had with the movie was that he didn't think that Mark, who's played by Timothy Busfield, was enough of a villain, like that he wasn't mean enough. But there's a part of me as well that's like, I like that about the movie, first of all. Like, I don't want a mustache twirling villain necessarily in this film. Um, but it also speaks to what you're talking about, right? Which is... How upset can Mark be about the five thousand dollars? You know what I mean. I well, they're trying to make thought, it out like he's, you know, can't right. make his mortgage payment. It just it right. doesn't doesn't quite track. Yeah. yeah, I always thought Mark was a mustache twirling villain. Really? As a kid, yes, he was as villainous as they get. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got a little older sure. that I yeah. started to appreciate that he was, you know, mostly just protecting his his sister. That's another thing we, we haven't really talked about with this movie, which is like, you know, for those of us who watch this kids, you relate to it in a certain way. And then now those of us who are watching it as adults with kids, you know, and, and are, you know, exactly Kevin Costner's situation, you know, trying to provide for young kids and, you know, pursue a dream that is potentially putting that, those, that family in, in, uh, 
in a tough situation, like you relate to Kevin Costner in a totally new way, but you also definitely relate to Timothy Busfield, who is just like, my sister's husband is a crazy person who is making my whole family financially insolvent and I'm going to be stuck holding the bag. And like, there's a very simple solution to his problem, but he's hearing voices. He should probably be institutionalized, but at the very least shouldn't plow over his cornfield. Like he's actually for sure the most reasonable person in the entire movie. (laughs) Of course he is, except he's coded as a villain because he can't see this shit. Right, right, and right, we can right. see this shit, right? The second we know he sees it, happening, he flips like fucking immediately. Is, I mean, if you don't think <laughs> Timothy Busfeld, Busfeld is a great actor, yeah, it's yeah. and he also, the, get here. he also has the best line with uh, with James Earl Jones and James Earl Jones' reaction when he says hi to these people. How you doing? Yeah. He's just and James Earl Jones laughing and getting it, it away. Such a perfect there line. Is just, there is a there is a a playfulness to this movie that 100%. would 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 seemingly undermined the gravity of what they're dealing with here because they're dealing a, with something pretty pretty heavy it's a very small timothy busfield moment i the last time i watched this movie was easily the 50th time i've watched it if not more <laughs> and i caught a timothy busfield moment that i'd never caught before which is that when karen falls on the ground and is choking on the hot dog and frank whaley walks to the edge of the dirt and then burt lancaster walks to her there's a reaction shot of timothy busfield where he mouths what the fuck? And I, know, I never noticed that before. But you have to think about that scene from Timothy Busfield's I've perspective. I've never noticed is, that. My niece is dying because I dropped her on the ground and a man just appeared from nowhere who happens to be Burt Lancaster, which is, I don't know, yeah, sure, a whole other thing. And his, his reaction, he doesn't say it out loud, but it's definitely a... What? It's, it's definitely worth That's watching That's again great. for that. That's great. Yeah, yeah he yeah. kills it. He kills it. It's he like really does. It. Yeah, and 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 his character is so important. The the you needed that character. The belief oh, yeah. in the non-belief, the fact that yeah. only some people could see it, and and uh, God knows, I mean, you know, God knows if it's a mass delusion or what, but it's really irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's wonderful. wonderful. Uh, at this point, we have the. Uh, we talked about it earlier, the, the gymnasium scene with Annie. Um, we have that wonderful moment where she slides across the floor and bangs into the lockers. It's just fantastic. Um, and then they both have the same dream and Ray goes to find Terrence. Um, yeah, there's... I think yeah, go ahead. One thing we haven't spoken about in this movie yet is yeah. uh, just how much work the score is doing. Oh, God. such a great score. Such a it's great score. such a great score. It... Uh, in the best possible way, it tells you how to feel, yeah. and yeah. you really do need that in this in this movie. In, in in a way that I don't think you do in a lot of movies. I think a lot of stuff does need that emotional cueing. Mm-hmm. Um, I bring that up because you know what? Uh, there are a couple of songs. There are a couple of needle drops in this, mm-hmm. and uh, this is that Almond Brothers song. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Man, What's that? Isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's the one that's one it's about? one that it's the one with no um with no lyrics. It's not called Amy, no. it's another girl's name, like Jessica or something. Okay. Uh some other some other lady. But it's that drop when he's on the road. There are a couple of drops that also have that, you know, that that Americana thing that that feels just right at that moment for that character in his Volkswagen, you know, I was gonna say in the, vo- drive, in the van, it's a, like the hippie van. Yeah, driving halfway halfway across country to go. Yeah kidnap you know the black jd salinger yeah it's i mean uh 
the needle drops are great. The score, James Horner apparently was approached to do the score. His schedule being as it was, he didn't think he'd be able to do it. And then he watched a cut of the movie and he's like, I have to do this. Like it was just, he, which, which, you know, shows the power of this movie. Jessica. Uh, but I think that that really speaks to this movie. You know, Kenny, you talk about it a lot, um, or, or specifically in this instance of scores telling you how to feel. I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen cuts of episodes or seen cuts of films without the score, and you really don't know how to feel. So when a composer of James Horner's caliber sees this film and knows how to feel, just be, like it, it feels kismet, right? It feels like that yeah, has to yes. happen. Um, so they go to Fenway Park, um, and uh, they have this. So, man agrees to attend the one game. Ray hears a voice urging him to go the distance. He sees statistics on the scoreboard for Wait. a player. So, let's yeah. not let's not yada 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 over the scene. Well, well, in, I, the, I, okay. in the apartment. Oh yes, sure, yeah. of course, of course. One of the great yeah. scenes in the movie. Go ahead. Just go ahead. so Sorry. good. I mean, the, I don't know. I mean, for, there, there, there are a couple of things that happen in that scene that I never will forget. Obviously, the finger as a gun is great. <laughs> Obviously, you know, Terrence Mann trying to attack him with the crowbar, and then you know Kevin Costner yelling, "You're a pacifist," and that working, which was wonderful. <laughs> I always thought I'll never bother you again. Not even a Christmas card. Uh, that that informed my understanding of what Christmas cards are for, for my entire <laughs> life. That Christmas, and this is how we do Christmas cards in my family in yeah. general. Christmas cards go out to a pretty wide list, you know, a pretty wide, just people you know. Yeah. And I think it's a lovely thing. And, and I'm very happy that I saw this movie and got the understanding that like, that, that even someone who, you know, you barely know, you can send him a Christmas card. It's very sweet. So uh, I love that. I love that he's making educational software. I love how how much Terrence Mann is on. I am not going to be a public figure anymore. Um, and I love that somehow Kevin Costner's passion or decency or stick to actually gets him in the car. How does it get him in the car? I I, th- I think about this a lot too because it's, we talked a little bit about this with Amy Madigan's character of like what's the grounding for why she goes along with it and it does come a little bit from her being a child of the 60s and sort of wanting sort of this adventure but I, I think you know Ray is a guardian angel who is giving people a second chance in this movie and right you know what he's giving Terrence Mann is a second chance at recapturing his idealism and his his belief in in storytelling and the magic of storytelling and I think there's a part underneath the cynic of, you know, the sort of reclusive J.D. Salinger type who still wants to have that magic rekindled. And so I think he's a willing, uh, he's willing to be persuaded from the second Ray walks in the door, Ray yeah. just needs to push, push the button. And the button, and it is brought up later, is the interview he gave, which he, he says he never did later, you know, um, but he... Right. It's also, though, yeah, it's the, it's the interview, but it's also when he says it's a long story, when he raised sort of falling apart and he realizes he's made a huge but mistake. But it's a good one. It's a long story, but it's a good one, and I'll tell you on the way, and I think that's what makes it click the story for Terrence Mann, which is that this is a story. And ultimately, that's what his journey is, is in the end of the film, when he walks into the corn, he's going to have a story to tell. And, and that's, that's what he was when he was at his best, was a storyteller, and he lost that sense, and now he's gaining it again. Agreed. 
Yeah, I, I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> Kenny's ready right, to rule. So, Kenny's ready. Kenny has yeah, ruled. Is it, and, only, uh, only, only door without a chicken in it. Only window without a chicken in it. Only window you know, without a chicken. And it's if little things like that. you sound friendly, you where you live. We would, <laughs> there's just, only, that's a great line. There are, all, there are little things like that that, again, I don't feel like we do anymore. I think we're embarrassed to put stuff like that in. Again, oh, that's, yeah. an out, that's an exterior scene in presumably Boston. Uh, that costs money, but it's worth it for the world. He lives in the Jewish neighborhood. I don't even get that. But why not? Why not? Sure. Um, so they go to Fenway. Um, they Ray hears this go the distance. He sees the, the statistics of this player, Moonlight You're Graham. missing Alex's favorite part of the movie. Oh, the dog in a beer. What do you want? What do you want? I want to be dog. left alone. What do you want? <laughs> oh, dog in a beer. Uh, by the way, other other piece of trivia about that Fenway Park scene: a young, yes. uh, a young Damon and Affleck were extras in that scene. And uh, when Affleck did some of all fears with Phil Adam Robinson, he told Phil Adam Robinson, "It's a pleasure to work with you again." And Phil Adam Robinson was quite confused until <laughs> Affleck explained it. Of course, Matt Damon. I was going to say, Affleck I was going to say, Coster and Affleck in the same pod. I, I, I did that once. I, I was an extra in Major League Two. I'm, I'm not in the movie, I'm sure. But like, right. I remember I was at an Orioles game. They shot that whole movie in Camden Yards. And uh, for about a month or maybe a little less than that, they would do crowd scenes during like inning breaks. So they would, it'd be a regular baseball game. And then they would say, okay, now we're going to do a couple of shots for this movie that we're doing. Everybody cheer like you're cheering for the Indians. Um, it was fun. I, I'm sure that they, I'm sure that's what they did. I'm sure they didn't like book Fenway Park to shoot that movie. I'm sure that they just shot it at a regular game. And- mm-hmm. It'd be great if if Matt and Ben put Field of Dreams as their first credit or whatever <laughs> on their resume. Yeah. <laughs> on their resume. Yeah. Uh, but I love that. I love that. I mean, they're. I mean, are there more Boston people than than those two? Of course, they yeah, were in Fenway for that. I mean, like anyway. Um, so then they drive to Minnesota. We have that great moment when in the headlights you see. Uh, James Earl Jones, um, and they drive to Minnesota. I, always, I also love when he claps when he leaves the car. Yes, total poker move, poker yeah, dealer move. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, he has so many little things like that, you know. That's and great. then they're in Minnesota, and he does that move. You know, for those of you with video, yeah, like we have to go this way. It's just great. He's just like great little physical acting by this guy. Are we at the obit scene? Because I have some good. Uh, We're at. We just, yeah, basically, they learn that Graham, who was a physician, had died years earlier, and they encounter. Uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, a couple things about that obituary scene that are fantastic. First of all, that's Moonlight Graham was a real guy. That's his real, real story. That's his real obituary mm. that they're reading in the scene, oh, wow. uh, which I think is fantastic. And the actress that plays the obituary writer, whose name escapes me, I apologize. Um, first of all, passed away right after the movie, as did Bill, uh, Burt Lancaster. Um, mm. Uh, but when James Earl Jones showed up on the set that day, they gave each other a big hug as old friends. And it turned out that James Earl Jones's very first role was as like a two line actor in a play when she was like bell of the ball theater actor in New York. And he, she, he's, you know, they, they went back, like it was like 40 years before that, that they had worked together, which I thought was a really sweet, but my, one of my very favorite lines in that whole scene in movie and it speaks to the thing that we're talking about with restraint, because the movie is so restrained for being so in your face with emotion, mm-hmm. is when um, James Earl Jones, she reads the obituary, and James Earl Jones says, you're a, you're a good writer. And she says, so are you. It's such a brilliant thing, because like, she, you know, the whole time you thought that they were anonymous there, and then you realized by the end that she actually knew he was this legendary writer, but didn't say anything about it. It just, it does so much in two very short sentences. It's just like, that's what you strive for as a writer, is to say, 
what should have been said in, you know, what could have been said in three pages, you say in two lines. That's, that's, you know, we've said it in, in a bunch of different ways over the course of this podcast, but like, that's the, the, one of the brilliant things about this movie is uh, it's brevity, right? Like it knows when to say something and it knows when not to say something. It knows when to sit in silence and just let two people play baseball and just let you soak up a moment. Um, It's, it's, it's really, it's really it's a very special movie. Uh, at this point, Ray time travels and fucking goes to some, uh, goes back to the seventies uh, yes. and sees uh, a, a marquee that has the Godfather <clears throat> playing and puts two and two together that he's somehow traveled through time and is able to to meet Burt Lancaster or Moonlight Graham and talk with him. Um, and then on the drive back to Iowa, Ray picks up a young hitchhiker played by Frank Whaley, uh, Archie Graham, uh, who's looking, who's just looking for a baseball field to play on. Um, and uh, do we think in that moment that Ray has put together what's going on? When he introduces himself, I mean, is that yeah, which is I'm Archie Graham. I think is when he puts it together. I don't they think, share I think a look. He, okay, fair I enough, think fair when enough. when 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 Frank Whaley gets in the car and says, "I'm going to," I want baseball. I think right. Foster okay. thinks this is part of my journey of okay. helping people realize their dreams, but I don't think mm-hmm. he realizes he's with my Graham until he says that. Yeah, um, I, yeah, he he doesn't. But I always, you know. This is one of those things where you have someone who was in a movie when you were younger that you really cared about. Frank Whaley's always been, and I'm sure this is Archie true for you, Alex. Not Archie Graham, my guy, right? Like, <laughs> like my guy. Like, if, anytime he shows up from Career Opportunities to School of Rock, it's like, there's my guy. Right. So, I just, I, I feel like I can never get over how badly abused he was in uh, Swimming with Sharks. I just, I feel like he's. Uh, <laughs> Or Pulp I just Fiction. want to give him a hug. Or Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Pulp Fiction. yeah. Um, but yeah, he's uh I, I love him in this movie. Um, you know, obviously he's like that's a he's he's always kind of been the guy you call when Matthew Broderick's not available. But Matthew Broderick would perfectly cast though, as sort of wide eyed. I was gonna say, uh, yeah. Matthew energy, Broderick couldn't yeah. have played this role. This was Frank Whaley's role, and um and it's perfect. I love him so much. He's he's fantastic. Um, I always think of him in JFK as well. Weirdly, uh, he's got like a bit bit role in that. Um, so then we have this scene where Ray tells uh, Terrence about how his father dreamed of being a baseball player, but later uh, tried to make him pick up the sport instead. And then at fourteen, after reading man's books, Ray stopped playing catch with his father. There's a great Ray line here. Rocker. Where he says, see, that's the kind of crap people always try to lay on me. It's not my fault you wouldn't play catch with your father. <laughs> There's an interesting thing. Like, uh, watching this movie, there was a number of things that struck me that didn't strike me before. Partially because I think this movie foretold something that it didn't know it was foretelling, which is the rise of toxic fandom mm-hmm. and the rise oh. of people who sure. believe that they owned an artist's work more than the artist did. You know, the sort of yeah. uh, folks who, you know, the largely in the comic book space, but I think all over the place. And I think I mean, you know, Taylor I, Swift has some pretty toxic fans. Yeah, sure. You know, sure. Um, and, and I think it's interesting, like that wasn't really a big thing in 1989, but it, it certainly, uh, you know, Sounder was probably the original mm-hmm. uh, sort of curmudgeonly, I'm not going to write any more recluse. And, uh, and obviously this is borrowing from that. It's, it's, it's an interesting piece of you know, uh, to, to, to piggyback on that, I fully agree, and I think it's interesting how much resentment people feel towards people that don't engage in the way that they want them to. Like now, if you don't have a social media account, yeah, people are like, "Well, fuck that for it. like this right. idea." It's like you said, the ownership, but also this like, 
like there's some sort of a contract that's going on between us and the artist and that by being their own human being, they're somehow negating that contract, which I think is nonsense, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, no, man absolutely fits into that. Um, so Ray admits that his greatest regret is that he never reconciled with his father. Um, and then, then they, uh, they get to the farm. They see, obviously, the various players. Lots of players have arrived at this point. Now they're like actually playing games together as opposed to just practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, Smokey Joe Wood, Mel Ott. There you go. Who's uh, the last guy? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Gil Hodges. Gil Hodges, right. I was going to say, <laughs> someone a little more, yeah, a little more contemporary. I'm Smokey Joe convinced. Wood. I wonder if you can Moonlight Graham would know who Gil Hodges is. I think today Alex Berger could play Moonlight Graham. I think I could pull it off. Yeah, you, you could. could too. You got but, a youthful energy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but who would play your Moonlight? Who would play your Doc? Uh, I mean, the guy from Up. <laughs> Ed Astor? That's the guy, the, no, no, the, the guy from Up, the, the, the actual cartoon, the cartoon character. Oh, sure, sure. That's sure. what I'm going to look like. That's you. <laughs> like, 25 years. Ed Asner. My jowls are already heading in that direction. Yeah. I like Ed Asner. I think that'd be great. Ed Asner's great. Um, so then they, um, uh, Archie gets to play with them um, and is successful. Here's, a, here's the thing so? that, that Phil will not uh, appreciate, I think, but Kenny will. Cool. Uh, uh, Archie Graham still doesn't have an at bat. Yeah. The whole idea of the movie is that he went to the major leagues and didn't get an at bat. But as a baseball player, if you get a sacrifice fly, it does not count as an at bat on the statue. Oh, that's so RC Graham's statue, even that's after true. playing with the greatest ghosts <laughs> of his generation, is still zero. Zero. At-bats. I'm sure but that I will. there are other. But actually, you know, speaking of restraint, by the way, like joking aside, this is another example of where the movie does such a good job of not getting too on the nose for being a movie that's pretty in your face. When Burt Lancaster gives a speech about what he wished he could have done, it was hitting a line drive into the outfield, running around the bases, crossing second and sliding into third head first to get a triple. A, a lesser movie would have had him do exactly yeah. that yep. on mm-hmm. the baseball field. And I, I read an interview with Robinson where he said, I didn't want to do that, but I wanted to, I wanted to give him a victory that felt appropriate. earned yeah. and yeah. appropriate. And so this hitting the sacrifice fly, which is the ultimate sacrifice that right. he's making, which I think is speaks to the sacrifice that Burt Lancaster makes when he gives it all up is great. I fully, I fully agree. And, and I, so when I watch it the first time, I'm not sure I even really clocked some of that stuff that was going on. Uh, just in terms of like the, the, the mechanics of the game itself. Uh, you just need 48, time, 48 more watches and you'll get it. Apparently. <laughs> but this time watching it, I, I was kind of hit with the fact that, that his big moment is, is a pop up. So that right. some is, is, is batting in a run, uh, which is kind of great. Um, yeah, yeah. I, this was actually the first time I ever watched where the the sacrifice sacrifice thing um, hit me because mm-hmm. uh, it 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 never felt it never felt like a like, like a missed moment. It never felt sure. underwhelming. It felt perfectly pitched. Mm-hmm. But the you know the literal sacrifice and um, the little sac- sacrifice line and the literal sacrifice of his youth, yeah. right? His opportunity to do this. Um, you know, I, I think that, I think that's so beautiful and wonderful. I, I, some, sometimes the most, on, cause I do think it's quite on the nose, obviously, but sometimes the most on the nose thing, uh, is exactly what you need. Mm-hmm. Right. I agree. Again, things that people are afraid of things that pe- people are afraid to put their heart out there like that. But, uh, I think a lot of great movies are, are often quite literal mm-hmm. when it comes to the, the big emotional moment. 
Can I ask a question? And and I don't mean this to be a leading question, but I'm I'm curious. What do we think the wink is all about exactly? Do we think there's any meaning there, or do we think that well, it's he, just him? He, doesn't he mention it? Doesn't Burr Lancaster mention that he wants to wink at the pitcher when he's telling uh, he Kevin Costner oh. what he wants to do? Okay, I think I, it's I, just that. I, I, I think it's. That. I think there's a certain culture of like the arrogance of the player at the okay. at the plate who knows more than the pitcher. I think it's it's nothing more than that. I don't think there's any. It's a okay. bit wise guy, but cool. Ghosty, ghosty. Yeah. Uh, so then Mark returns, uh, demanding that Ray sell the farm or the bank will foreclose. Karen gives a tremendous speech. Oh, she really so does. Cute. Gabby Hoffman's the cutest in this movie. Uh, so, so, something I noticed about that speech that I'd never noticed again before. So the the great speech of the movie, obviously, is James Earl Jones. Mm-hmm. People will come. Baseball is marked the time speech. Gabby Hoffman, right before him, gives exactly the same speech <laughs> through the eyes of a six-year-old. Yeah. It is mansplaining to the like <laughs> thousandth degree. Who ends? Is like, let, yeah. let me just let me take another crack at that. Let me take another crack at, at rewriting your speech from from my perspective. <laughs> my perspective. I'm going to give it a little bit more eloquently and with a little bit more base. Yep, you're you're it's, right it's about so that. Funny. It's so funny. Right I, I don't think that. I noticed it because yeah. she just she makes the same pitch, which is like down to like people will come to people Iowa will City. Come. And yeah. get bored. Go on a vacation. We'll come, and then Terrence Mann just puts it in poetry, and all of a sudden he's getting the Academy Award nomination. It is so, kind uh, of amazing that because, like, her perspective, hers is from the childhood perspective, right? It's from the youthful yeah. perspective, and his is from obviously from age uh, and wisdom and what have you. Um, but yeah, they are they are surprisingly similar. Her speech yeah. basically is, you know. People will come to watch the, the baseball games and then man agrees and <laughs> gives the same speech again. Right. Um, and then, Alex, said, you know, yeah. go ahead. No, please, please. Well, I have a question for you, Alex. Yes. You have three children, right? Yes. What is this agenda breakdown? I have a girl and two boys. I have a girl and three boys. So we, all, we each have a girl. Why do you think they gave this character a daughter and not a son? Um, which is to which is not an accident, I'm sure, and it's not uh, some kind of it. Let's put it this way: when I give characters children, it's almost always random. I almost never put any thought into uh, if this is if this should be a son or a daughter. It's just what I'm feeling at that moment. You know, this seems like an interesting dynamic. But for a movie that's so explicitly about fathers and sons, yeah. the only relationship between parent and offspring we see throughout this film is between a father and a daughter. I, I think the answer, it's interesting you think about that because I was playing it out of my head. And I think, you know, for better or worse, there's, there's obviously a lot of stereotypes built into this. But if you, had, if you had made it a boy, you would have been required to do the requisite plot line of, is Kevin Costner going to teach his kid to play baseball like his dad forced right. him to play baseball? Is Kevin Costner going to pitch to his kid and play little league with his kid? And you don't, I, I think to a detriment of the way that we categorize kids these days, but like you don't make those jumps when you're talking about a father and a daughter. So I think it actually was just an economy of like probably some story he didn't want to have to deal with more than mm. it, there's certainly a lot to be done about like, refiguring the gender dynamics with a kid when you had a father issues and now all of a sudden you have a daughter. It just doesn't, it doesn't think, I don't think this movie wants to do any of that. I, to me, it was just trying to dispense with some stuff I didn't want to do. That'd be my guess. Kenny, what do you think? Um, I think you're right. I mean, I do think you're, I think you're right, but with all the respect, 
that's not a very satisfying answer. You're right? welcome. The, <laughs> the, it, the, essentially, the, ans- the, the answer is, uh, and again, I think you're right, but they just didn't want to deal with some issues. But I do think it's worth at least investigating the issues that are brought up by going in the, by 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 pivoting to this other direction because if the if having a son you know and being a baseball obsessive and having these father issues is wrought with all of these pathos mm-hmm. the idea is, is that having a daughter has none of them and that's just not true and you know this is a father of a daughter so i i i i guess what i what i want to say is I, I find it wildly um, affecting that he's the father of a daughter. I love being the father of a daughter. I think that, you know, the bond a father has with a daughter uh, is completely unlike the bonds I have with my sons. And obviously the bonds you have with all your kids are different from each other. But um, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a heart connection that you have with your daughter, at least I have with my daughter, that transcends any of this i'm gonna be like you thing right Mm. but i I don't know i don't know i i i don't know i i i think it's interesting and i think it's unique and i think it's not you know it's not something that's just kind of be yada 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 over i think that there's there's a lot built into why a daughter why karen why this particular type of kid why someone who is clearly a daddy's girl Mm-hmm. Um, you know, goes on the tractor with him and is interested in baseball and, you know, is 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 caught up in his kind of flights of fancy. Um, but I do. I think uh, you know, I think it's going back to our initial point, there is an entryway for a daughter with a father. Totally. Yeah. You know, there is an entryway, I think, for a lot of girls who had relationships like this with their dads, where they were brought in. You know, particularly uh, a girl without brothers, you see this a lot, where they were kind of brought in mm-hmm. to um, their father's, you know, passions and, you know, desires and all that stuff. Um, and sometimes also kept at arm's length and not kind of, you know, being, you know, burdened with the weight of expectations. But maybe there's some issue why there's not there. There aren't the same expectations there. There's a lot here, I guess is what I'm getting at that. I don't think the movie needs to interrogate, but I think it's there. I think that it's, right. you know, interesting choice. I agree with that. Um, this, this is probably, and, and I alluded to it earlier. This is probably the, the bumpiest part of the movie for me, which is the Karen falling, choking on the hot dog, you know, and then a scuffle kind of breaks out. Kara's knocked off the the bleachers. There, it feels like there's a, a slight false injection of of stakes here of her injury and 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 you know, Burt Lancaster or or Moonlight being a doctor, so he he crosses off the baseball field and appears and knocks her on the back once or twice. She coughs up the hot dog and uh the medical, and the medical procedural aspects of it are the medical little, procedural uh, you're, part you're, of you're it. Na- you're narrating it like it's like like, like it's a, a, a exasperating failure. It's this is this is wonderful. This is the moment that changes the whole movie. Okay. I, I it's it's I, the I part that works least Phil, for me. Phil's point about you know it, it is a bit uh you know bumpy in terms of the logic questions. I, I never ask those questions. To me when I look at moments like that, I ask, 
is it organic to the character story that they're trying mm -hmm. to tell? And to me, sure. the character story that they're trying to tell is Burt Lancaster is trying to wrestle with the, the, the chance that he never had. And the ultimate realization that he makes is that he was put on this earth to be a doctor, not a baseball yeah. player. So to get there, you have to put him in a situation where he's forced to choose baseball player or doctor, and he chooses doctor. Mm -hmm. And he's perfectly satisfied. And then I, you know, uh, on my cry list, the oft-mentioned cry list is the moment <laughs> where he's walking through the field of players to go back out it's into the, the cornfield, and they're all and they saying, great job, doc. You know, great, you know, tipping the hat to him, which to me says, you were good on the baseball field, but that's not why you were put on this earth. But, but I, my cry list is my first one is always Ray Liotta saying, "Doc, you were good." Yeah. Uh, or, "Hey, kid, you were good." And I, I, I love that. And I, I mean, has any actor ever gotten a better final shot than that low pan to Lancaster? I mean, he loves Phil Allen Robinson. Loves a shot from behind where a character turns around and looks at the camera. There's like 15 of them in the movie, including like three with Lancaster. Yep. It's yep. just so, it's so beautiful with that cornfield and, and walking away. It's in such stark contrast to what we saw with Audrey Hepburn in mm -hmm. Always, Always, which certainly had the opportunity to treat her. I mean, look, no one knew she was going to die when she did, but uh, to treat her the same way as they did with Burt Lancaster. And I think Burt Lancaster's cast, uh, Jimmy Stewart, obviously, is Jimmy Stewart, and it would have been amazing. Um, but I think Burt Lancaster brings that same uh, angelic thing from another time that this movie begged for. I, I would argue, and again, we'll never know what it would have looked like with, with Jimmy Stewart, and I'm sure he, he would have been good or great in his own way. But I also feel like there's, there's more baggage that Jimmy Stewart brings you know what I mean? It's similar to why I think the Audrey Hepburn thing doesn't work in Always, which yeah. is that you never forget that you're you're watching Audrey Hepburn. Um, whereas in this, I forget I'm watching Burt Lancaster because Burt Lancaster doesn't have the same sort of persona, doesn't have the same sort of iconography necessarily that uh, that a Jimmy Stewart would. I, I I don't know that if if he had been in this film, we would have been able to turn off that part of our brain. Hard to say. We'll never know. Burt Lancaster's great. Certainly not suggesting otherwise. Um, and, and again, I don't mean to suggest that that this part of the film doesn't work. It's not that it doesn't work. It's just... I think that's what you mean to suggest. That's not what I'm saying. There's <laughs> just... It's, it's the moment when Kevin Costner says, you can't go back, where you're just like, what? What? When did this rule happen? Why? Why is it? Why all of a sudden? But but, but, but Shula Joe couldn't. They they established that early in the movie. He tried. Shula Joe walks up to the gravel and he can't step over the gravel. They foreshadowed that there's something to that. I mean, something happens sure when you. Yes, yeah, something happens when you cross over on the gravel, and he <laughs> walk. Well, it's, it's, it's not about crazy. Ghosts. Yeah, it's a movie about baseball ghosts. I'm not again, guys. I I said earlier I don't want to be the person to nitpick this stuff because it 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 doesn't do us any good, and it's and more than anything, it's meaningless because the movie works. Well, I'm not suggesting. I, I, it I mean, look, I was I, the guy I do want to. I was the guy who brought up the price of the acre of corn. I I, I fully am with you if you're going to. So I'm I just I just want to say I just want to say this is different. This is different from from a movie. Uh, breaking its own rules. This is a movie that okay. has somewhat ambiguous rules that are getting solidified or crystallized as the movie go al goes along. Okay. We know that there's something to this gravel to this the gravel line that's established the first time, you know, we meet Joe. So, we don't know what it is, but we know that something happens 
we fair. figure it out. That's fair. I also not, think there's there's a oh, sorry, okay. No, that's it. It it it, it doesn't feel the same as I get that. Yeah, but they I, but I, they said that this is the thing, and now it's not the thing. I also think there's a difference when you talk about movies with rules, and this is the first time I'm, I'm having this thought, so it may fall apart as I get deeper into it. <laughs> but there's a difference between a movie like Back to the Future, mm-hmm. which is about a character who is thrust into a world that they don't understand and has rules, sure. and that character is trying to manipulate that world actively in order to achieve a goal. I've got to go back to the past and then I get back to the future in order to do something that's yes. going to be versus a movie like this, which has magic rules, yeah. but they are so irrelevant to what, Correct. you know, cost like Costner's being pulled along in the journey of the, it's, mm-hmm. it'd be, it'd be one thing if his, the movie was about, I've got to go into the cornfield and find Shoeless Joe. And I've got to figure out how I get into the corn and I've got to like calibrate the, it's so what the, it's just not what the movie is about. The movie is about an emotional journey. So, no, I agree. It's not conceptual. It's emotional. Yeah. You make this like it's a. There's a. If you put this movie, if you map this movie visually versus Back to the Future, which I think weirdly are very similar movies to me, at least um, the way they make me father feel. Son well, yeah, father. Their father son stories. Their magic realism stories. Yeah. They uh, they use they use their their score very effectively. Nostalgia. Um, very yes, very nostalgic, and I think Back to the Future actually scratches. A, a similar itch for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Back to the Future's a machine. It's almost like it's you. You are laying the track in the moment, but you see where you're going and seeing the way it works, and you know if you lay track in the wrong direction, you could uh, you could fall apart. This is almost like going into a, um, a going into a corn maze in a in a but under a cloud. Right? right? Anything could be around the next corner. You have a basic sense of, you know, I'm in this maze and I just have to kind of follow my, my gut, but you don't necessarily know what's coming at you. You can't see the road ahead. Um, and I think that that works to this movie's advantage in that it, it, and I think you've admitted this over and over, Phil, it inoculates itself against that kind of criticism, yep. Yep. right? The, you can say it and it's there and there is a lot of, oh, yep. now this is the deal, now this is the but. You just don't really feel that. You do feel like you're kind of being carried along mm-hmm. on a cloud throughout this film. I think that I, I and and I think the reason that this moment bumped me a little bit is that it's the only time when you do feel a little bit the gears of machination of logic and sort of like plottiness. Like it's the only time when the film kind of is forced into a position where it needs to explain itself a little bit. Um, and I hear you that that's the only reason that it kind of stuck out for me a little bit in this watch. Um, I agree with everything you're saying, Kenny, and that this film absolutely rides on, on a wave of emotion and, and sentiment and, and all of it. And it works beautifully. I think it also feels a little bit like a lot of things are happening at once at this point, like Karen falling him leaving the baseball diamond. Like there's just, there's a bunch of stuff happening all at once. And that kind of compactness made me go like, whoa, whoa, whoa what's happening here exactly? It is what it is. I'm not, I, 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 I'm, that's, that's my, that's my, that's my bump and whatever. Um, Graham leaves. Uh, Shoeless Joe invites man to enter the corn. <laughs> Ray's pissed off that he doesn't get to go. What's in it um, for me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What's in it for me? Um, I love, 
I mean, I, I think that, that James Earl Jones is tremendous in this film across the board, but the joy that he's feeling as he's the about to end, yeah. the, the childhood glee that he's feeling in that moment is just... Supposedly is, that came from uh, Robinson asked... Uh, sorry, James Earl Jones asked Phil Robinson, what does it feel like when I go into the court? Like, what am I? is it yeah. painful? Am I? Yeah. And he said, what do you think it feels like? And James Earl Jones said, I guess I think it tickles. <laughs> and so when you watch it with knowing that you uh, put it you put the hand in there and yeah. it, it, like it tickles that's yeah. that's it's such a cute little, it is little, mo- little little moment i love right before that mm. i love the way i love the way leota uses his gloved hand to point you know <laughs> through, with point through the hole in the back of the glove and he, he put everything he does is the coolest possible way of doing things and I think that that the, the character doesn't ride and die on coolness, but I, I think that there is a, a almost a big brother quality to him with Costner, right? Um, that feel like there's a bromance thing, and, and that feels really, really wonderful. So we're, we're now at the at the point where. Um... Ray is angry for not being invited. Glancing towards the catcher at home plate, um, he hears, if you build it, he will come. Removing his catcher mask is Ray's father. As a young man, Ray realizes ease his pain was referring to his father. And Ray introduces John to Annie and Karen without revealing their relationship. And as John heads back towards the cornfield, Ray calls. Ease his pain was referring to himself. Uh, Okay. No, it was you. Ray realizes Ease his pain was referring to his father. Yeah, I mean that's that. I think they got it wrong. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, if you build it, he will come. He was definitely his father. Yes, Ease his pain. Yes. It, it could have been any one of them. It still could have been Terrence Mann. It could have been. I think you could interpret it as any one of them. But yeah, I think the he right. is not. The he and he will come is definitely his father. Right. Definitely his father. Um, it should be said as well that originally Ray didn't say dad. Um, that, that, that was going to be my, that was my, oh, that was so, my I'm facts. sorry. Yeah, I'm that's sorry. Okay. No. I think uh, that's such a great, it's a, it's a, it's a great illustration. Uh, you should, you should give the full context. For it, no, it's basically audiences were disappointed with the lack of acknowledgement of the father and son. So they looped it in post and had him say dad. Um, I got to agree. He's got to say dad. He's got to say dad. Right. It's just to me, what's so great about it is it's, I think one of the great lines in movie history. I mean, certainly the actual piece of dialogue is, is not as big as just the way that that piece of dialogue exists in context, but it is truly one of the two or three things I can put in, you know, watch 10 seconds of, and it hits me emotionally like it did the first time. And what's amazing is, yeah, it was, they screened the film. Some people didn't get that it was, uh, that he, that they, they knew that the father knew that, Right. He was Ray's father. And I think it's pretty clear if you watch it from the interaction that they're having with his wife and kid that he knew. But um, it, to me, it's a good example of the of the philosophy of, of writing is rewriting all the way through post because, mm-hmm. you know, you can take the most iconic line in that movie and it wasn't in the script and it wasn't in the shoot. And it's just, it still works so well, I yeah. think. Well, it's, it, is, it is critical that he says It's critical it. that he says, Dad. I, I you know... We've talked a lot about Kevin Costner. We've talked a lot about the father-son stuff. The way the line gets caught in his throat, the delivery yeah. of it is just, it's, it's unreal. It's, it is, it's the whole movie in one line. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know um, 
how anyone doesn't watch that line and get emotional. Like it's 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 unbelievable. So I want to make a point. Please. That's your this right. this movie yeah. hinges on a father and a son having a baseball catch. Yeah. Can you think of anything on paper that sounds more trite? <laughs> nope. It um, sounds more like a Norman Rockwell painting. Nope. Well, but 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 even but but, but worse, yeah. right? Like oh, yeah, yeah. the climax of this film is a father and a son having a baseball catch. And it just goes to show that sometimes it is the most basic, you know, kind of that's what I'm looking for. It's 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 I basic is fine. It's it's the most basic kind of um actions and emotions and connections mm. that work. And the point I want to make is the other film I can think of that does something like this, allegedly, uh, is Citizen Kane, right? Sure. Because people try to say that Citizen Kane is really just about a loss of innocence and a loss of youth, and all he really wanted was his, you know, yep. his... Um, Slay. His sleigh and his childhood. Sure. Um, but that's not true. That's not what that movie is about. And that's uh, my least favorite thing about that movie. The notion that that's some kind of wonderful twist ending that that humanizes uh, Kane in some way. You you guys know what Rosebud was, right? Uh, pretty sure it was a euphemism for... That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. So, you know, even, even that, that's that, that is, there's no purity in that moment. No. And it, when you, when you interrogate it a little more, you just, you, you see that, that, in fact, it's more cynicism on top of the cynicism dripping throughout that incredible film. No, absolutely incredible film. But anyone who tries to pretend that it's in any way, like, you know, like, like, like emotionally cathartic is crazy. This Agreed. is emotional catharsis yeah. in a way that I almost can't believe exists, even more so than It's a Wonderful Life, which is the closest thing I can think of. But It's a Wonderful Life lays it all out there. Yeah, of course you don't want to be dead, <laughs> right? Like, I, like I, all right, I get that. Like, you yeah. should not want to be dead. Like, that's not particularly <laughs> – but something as simple as, like, it, it all comes down to a baseball catch. It's beautiful, and you get it. You get it. If you well, didn't have catches with your dads, it was something else. But everyone gets it. It's I, I think it there's a purity in it that is really sort of, you know, and I think that's what you were sort of what you were circling on the whole the basic thing. Like it's elemental. Elemental it's, is the word I was looking for. You know yes. what I mean? There's there's a purity to it that that feels um you know, he throws it away earlier, no pun intended, when he talks about that his dad wanted to play catch and he basically told him to go fuck himself. <laughs> and mm. so, like, you know, he, and, and, and that's thrown away perfectly and buried within a, a deeper scene earlier in the film so that this resonates. But still, you said it yourself, Alex, like, out of context, if I just showed this scene to someone who's never seen this movie, I think they'd be emotional just on a pure, on a pure like... That's a human being asking his dad if he wants to play catch in an emotional way. It's it's just it's, yeah. Although it's I, I think you need to, to of course, know. Of course, I think you but, need to know the context that he sure. had a, a frayed relationship with his dad. That that's a ghost of his father. And there's something so like <laughs> sure. cool about the fact that he's relating sure. to his father at the age that he is now. Like I, all that adds to it. But once you know that, you don't need yeah. to ramp into it like you For do. Sure. A lot of other I think movies. there is a I think there is a two minute version of this movie. That would that would that would make an alien cry, and I I say that because there are commercials that make people cry, you know, yeah. like there is like the, there is a 
There is a version. I want to put that on. I got to tweet that, Kenny. There's a two minute version of Field of Dreams that would make an alien cry. (laughs) (laughs) I think that I think that that it exists. Um, I I don't know if we could if we could cut it, but I think we probably could. And I think two minutes might be too long. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's. I I mean, I, I think that you know we talked about the last shot. We talked about sort of the the filmmaking to make all of this sing in the way that it does. But I, I just, I, I was thinking as we've been talking about this now, if anyone would try to remake this film, like if this is the type of thing oh, that somebody tries to remake. And, and I obviously hope that never happens because I think that it would, it would ruin it. But um, I, I think that this movie had to be made in the moment. You know, Alex, you referred to like, it could have been made in the seventies, probably could have been made in the nineties, I guess too. Like those are all different versions of it because of different timeline, different history, what have you. But, but this just feels like a moment when the planets aligned for this particular film, which is again, why I think it feels so special. It just, it, it feels like lightning in a bottle, you know? Um, Kenny, do you have other thoughts before I have we nothing break else this? to say? Nothing I have nothing else to say. To say. Okay. I just right. want to say I, I don't know if my dad's listened to all two and a half hours of this, but I know he will listen to this one. And I just want to say that I love my dad. Oh, that's he's awesome. Been a, he's been a great dad, and thank you for introducing me to this film. Uh, Alex, did you have any other thoughts, or did we hit everything that you wanted to say about it? No, that's it's right up there. I mean, I my my dad passed away five or uh, five years ago, but uh, it still hits me. I think more emotionally because of uh, sure because of that connection and that feeling of things not said. And uh, I had a great relationship with my dad. He wasn't like always, you know, warm and fuzzy early, but uh, later in life, he was more so. And I think um, you know the movie hits my heartstrings at a very sure. personal level. But I think you know. I think it is universal. I think it really does. I mean, as you say, like maybe you can't, as Kenny was saying earlier, maybe it's not made for you if this wasn't your story, but I do think it works at a pretty universal level. Absolutely. I mean, as I, as I said, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, this, this film, I don't have the history of this film that you guys do. And I think it speaks volumes about the film that it can resonate in the way that it does for me. Um, you know, even sitting down to watch it and being like, all right, I guess I'm going to watch this again for the, you know, and just, just, it envelops you. It's a warm hug of a movie. It it, it just, it, it really is just, it embraces you and, and, and the human condition and, you know, not to belabor the point, but, but America, you know, the idea of Americana of, of what, of, mm-hmm. of, of potential of, of, um, bloodlines and 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 all that kind of stuff ancestry you know it's it's a really it's a very powerful movie and and despite the fact that and we've talked about this that for a movie that isn't subtle it's incredibly nuanced and incredibly subtle yeah so it it does both those things incredibly well um kenny would you like to 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 rate this i I mean is it is it is it it rating of all time (laughs) 99s across across the board it's never not been a 99 it's the 99ist of 99 niners for me um I don't even know what to say. I, I, it's, it, it's beyond a movie. More than anything, sure, more sure. than anything I, I, I have in my life, it's beyond a movie. It's maybe the only movie I can think of that never grows old for me in any way. Um, there's not a moment of the, this movie I don't look forward to. There's not a moment of this movie that doesn't affect me, I think, the exact way the movie wants it to affect me. Um, there's not a character I don't completely love by the end of this movie. Um, you know, I think yeah. the, you know, what I was always taken with by, I love this so much, but as a kid, I was always taken with it. You guys know who the voice is credited to? 
on the credits? I forget. It's himself or something? Know. Himself. Yeah. Which is like this little kiss of mystery at the end of the movie still. <laughs> it's this still little, not known. There's like yeah. theories out there about who yeah. it was, whether it was Ed Harris or, or yeah. Ray Liotta or Costner or Bill Robinson. Nobody, he's, Robinson's never said. Yeah, it's That's just right. this little, little kiss of like, you know, there's something bigger out there. Um, and again, we don't talk, we didn't talk about religion. And I think to call, you know, baseball, the religion is like really kind of, super, you know, kind of Acting. ephemeral. It's, it's, it's so glib. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, it's, it, it's, but uh, as I spoke, I've spoken about this on this podcast, you know, over the last four years since we've been doing this podcast, I've become a more spiritual person. Sure. And uh, I, you know, I, I never looked down upon the spirituality of this movie. I also never found solace in it either. That wasn't what this was for me. This was a movie, right? This was, the, the, and movies were where dreams came true. Move fiction was where you could right the wrongs fiction was where you can you know, have the conversations you never had before and and you know kind of in kind of elaborate upon that um but as i've gotten older you know i i do feel like there is there is something that uh that happens and i don't know what it is but um i i'm more open to this idea of it's never over and i love that now i mean it's even even a bigger it has it holds even a bigger space in my heart than it used to. So, yeah, I think that you know. I, I, so as I as I mentioned, uh, I had not seen this film until. Wait, wait, hold. Go, oh. wait, let let Alex go first, only because you're the only question mark for me. Okay. Oh, keep the suspense up. I, I, I mean, know, I, I pretty much know what Alex is going to do too. Well, so. you know, I think if I you, you what, isn't the first question you asked, what would you have rated it back then? Yes. yes. You know, as a as a kid, I you know, 99, but as you guys have talked about, I think this is the the sweet spot of the age that we were yep. where every movie was a 99 because we were so excited <laughs> to go see a movie. Yep. I think if you asked me to rate it before I agreed to do this podcast, mm. you know, like a year ago, I might've said 90, 95 only because of what Kenny said earlier, which is like, there is a certain embarrassment about ranking this movie as one of your favorites, if not your favorite movie of all time, because it is um, what it is. And so I might've hedged, a sure. little bit, but mm-hmm. you know, rewatching it, it just, especially this is probably the first time I've watched it in its entirety since I've had kids. And I think that adds a nice layer of I'm in Costner's shoes in a way that I wasn't when I'd seen this movie earlier. So yeah, I'm back up to 99, 99 star. I mean, listen, Bill. I, I, it's, I, before the podcast, I was probably at a 90. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, there's, there's not a lot of flaws that I have in this movie. And I would say that the only, the only thing, and I'm at, a, I'm at a 95 now after having talked with you guys about this. I, I, I'll say this. Good. Hey. Pretty for, good. For a movie you only saw this year or in the last six months. That's, that's, a, that's amazing. It's a, it's a very good movie. I think that, you know, uh, my, my, my nitpickiness about sort of third act, you know, bumps or whatever aside, I'd say that the only sort of issues I have with the film are on a personal level. You know what I mean? In the sense that, like, I'm not a big baseball guy. So, like, I can watch a movie about baseball and be emotionally invested. I, I still think A League of Their Own is the best baseball movie. But I, I think that... As a, I'm just not a sports person, so there's that part of it. Um, and then my relationship with my father is just not this relationship. And that's not a judgment. It's just I just don't have that. And on top of all of this, I'm Canadian. So there is this component of like this film radiates with Americana that I yeah. don't have. So those are not flaws on the film. These are just right. what I bring to it. And thus the film doesn't 
you know, isn't perfect. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, it's, 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 it's insane. Like I, I tweeted this yesterday, like the charm of this movie is just absolutely undeniable. Like it, it's just, and, and if you do deny it, then I would argue that I, I, to what end? Like, why? Like, why are you fighting this movie? <laughs> yeah, I think we, we, you know, obviously there's no hater on this pod, sure. but there are haters of this movie. Yeah. And a lot of it comes from the, I don't buy it. Like that, yeah. that is yeah. not the relationship with my dad. Yep. That doesn't work for me. Like, you yep. know, this, this is, this only speaks to, you know, boring white men. And uh, I would never fight with those people. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because if you're not willing to give yourself over to this, it's yes. it's like not There's giving no yourself it's like not giving yourself over to Babe. I get it. Like yeah. if you're not gonna get down with the talking pig movie, fine. Like yeah. Yeah. fine, that's, yeah. that's it. But like you'd probably like it if you did give yourself over to it. So I think that uh, yeah, no, I, I, agree 100%. I, I think that I, I almost think this movie more than most for me, maybe more yeah. than any movie, I've accepted that the haters are irrelevant. Um, in. Yeah in terms of this movie and there I can't think of another movie that, 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 you know, that I actually, that I really feel that way about. It's funny you say that Kenny. Cause I, I do find my, like the, the film that I have a similar relationship with um, is ET, which you mentioned earlier um, a movie that I would say up until recently, I have fought as my favorite film. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, I mean, listen, ET Fargo, I mean, depends on the day I wake up. Those are, those and mine, are mine is mine is filled with Jews and Fargo too, for that matter. But you know, you know Fargo is what I say when I'm, you know, exactly when I feel like cool. I have to. Exactly, exactly. And, but like, well, well, there's also like there's there's favorite and best, which is like right, right. You know, Billy Madison is one of my favorite movies. Sure. I would never say it is one of the best movies ever made. You know, right. that's all, that's, a, that's a separate conversation. But I think that there's something and 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 this kind of hones in on, I think, everything we're saying about Field of Dreams in general, which is that E.T. is a type of movie that is tris- transcended the art form, right? That it is, it is now an emotional experience for me and, 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 a, and a tie to my childhood and a tie to perhaps a divorce of my parents, whatever you want. Like, it's all baked into this movie that it's no longer a movie really anymore. Yeah. Um, so I, I, to your point, Kenny, like, I can't be... I can't divorce myself from that. Like it is, it's a part of me and that's what it is. Um, and I think that's a glorious thing. We should embrace that and not that worry about like what the fuck thing. anybody that's thinks right. about that. So that's the, that's the exact point. That's what you, that's what you want. Strive for, right? Yeah. That's the dream yeah. to have something that means so much to you that it really doesn't matter. Yep. I mean, like, look, having a conversation with you guys about this movie is fantastic. Having a conversation where you're just building on and building on and building on is wonderful. Um, but, you know, it wouldn't really matter that much if no one else felt that way because I have a relationship with this movie. I have a relationship with this material that is more powerful than any conversation Absolutely. I can have about this, about how brilliant I think the movie is. That's why, and that's to your point, to both of your points, like that's why... You know, th- there are films that I will go to the mat for with haters that that I probably get some perverse pleasure out of fighting with people about to some degree or another. And then there are films where I'm just like, nothing you say is going to tarnish this film. Nothing you right. say is going to take that away from me. And it doesn't have the same effect for you. And that's just what it is. And people just have to live with that. It's, it's more like a song than a movie in that yeah. way. Yeah, sure. You know? Yeah. 
Well, Alex, thank you for coming on and talking to us. So, so uh, <laughs> fun to finally be part of the fabric. I, I've really enjoyed this 89 series has been great. Obviously, 99 oh, has thanks. a lot of great movies, but the 89 series, I think both because of the quality of movies in that year, but also because, as you've alluded to many times, like we experienced those movies in a fresh way that we didn't, I think, in 99. It's been really fun. And I, I, my wife and I have now started going back and watching, as you're doing, the series, like the ones that have been... Uh, Oh, that's like, awesome. Sort of sparked it. So we've fallen back in love with Last Crusade and with, you know, a bunch of the other ones you've done. So sure. thank you. No, please. Thank you for, for yeah, being you here. For and and that's, it's thank you for listening. And it's, uh, it's, it's so nice to hear that, uh, that it's resonating with you. So, awesome. but, and, and I look forward to talking uh, West Wing with you uh, sometime soon. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. Baby fish mouth. Baby Apple fish Marvel. mouth. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.